Been all of America. 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 Audio. Get ready for another leap in thought, in attitude, in approach to life. The old ways are dying. A new world is being born. Maybe we've gone through this before, as some of us theorize. Maybe we didn't meet the challenge. Maybe we're being prepared to meet the challenge and this time survive better than we were before. Those of us who are truly committed and devoted to this mission, we never get rich, but we are always given enough, you know, just just enough to sustain us. <laughs> that hits right at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, I'm just getting just enough, <laughs> whether I like it or not. Well, I can tell you, Tim, don't look forward to getting any more. <laughs> I did look at your exhaustive list of books and was happy to say that I haven't seen any 2012 books by you, so... <laughs> no, and you won't. Thank you, thank you. That's why this man's on the season finale, folks. When you send me an email saying it's time again, I say, yes, I'd love to talk to Tim again because he knows what he's talking about. He knows the field. He respects the field. And now. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 6. That's right, folks, the long and winding road that has been BOA Audio Season 6 comes to its conclusion here this week on the program. And we have got an absolutely mammoth edition of the show. Brad Stogger for nearly two hours, Whitley Strieber for about a half hour, but I'm going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. And I guess teasing more stuff into the future, tune in to the end of the program where I'll reflect more on Season 6 and tease you about Season 7, just because it is our season finale here for Season 6 does not mean that is the end of BOA Audio we have got some amazing plans for the next chapter of this program. Season 6 has been insane. It's lasted nearly 14 months. It has been comprised of hours upon hours of paranormal discussion. And, of course, it has been entirely free. How do we do that? That is thanks to the BOA Audio listeners who make donations. So, if you have been enjoying the program all these months and you want to help out the show, there are two ways to do that, and all that information can be found at Banal of America. We say it at the end of the program all the time before the folks who have not heard it before. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and BOA Audio 
commercial-free, up-and-running, and freely available to all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Now that we've taken care of all of that, let's get down to business here on the festivities that are the BOI Audio Season 6 season finale. As I said, a nearly two-hour conversation here with Brad Steiger covering a myriad of topics. As longtime BOA audio listeners know, Brad Steiger joined us to close the book on Season 2, which was one of the more difficult seasons of the show, and Season 6 has been pretty much on par with 2 as far as the potholes in the road. So I thought it was perfect to bring Brad Steiger on here to really help us say goodbye to what has been a difficult season of the show. And really, it was a fantastic conversation. As we've been saying here, it runs nearly two hours and covers just so much stuff. In putting together the preview here, I just made a list of all the big topics. So let me run them down so we can get things rolling as quickly as possible. Over the course of the conversation, we're going to discuss World War II table tipping, how the Internet has changed the paranormal, 2012 and apocalyptic thinking, ancient civilizations, the hollow earth, parallel species living on the earth like elementals, the UFO phenomenon and ufology, Long John Neville, Alastair Crowley, paranormal research in the 1960s, and the state of the world as we roll through 2012 plus lots of really thought-provoking wisdom from the iconic Brad Stoggard. This, my friends, truly is a landmark episode of the program and a conversation for the ages, as Brad Stoggard makes his long-awaited return to BOA Audio and helps us close out Season 6 in style. Truly, Brad Stoggard needs no introduction, but I shudder to think, there are some folks out there who are unfamiliar with Brad Steiger, so let's give you the bio. Brad Steiger is the author-slash-co-author of 170 books, with over 17 million copies in print. His first published articles on The Unexplained appeared in 1956, and he has now written more than 2,000 articles with paranormal themes. From 1970 to 1973, his weekly newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger, was carried domestically in over 80 newspapers and overseas from Bombay to Tokyo. He was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa on February 19, 1936, and he's married to Sherry Hansen Steiger, a licensed and ordained minister, herself the author or co-author of over 22 books. He has two sons, three daughters, and six grandchildren. His website is www.bradandsherry.com, pretty simple, all one word, bradandsherry.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 31st, 2012. Brad Steyer on the season finale of BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season finale of BOA Audio Season 6. And without having even begun the conversation, I can tell you folks that you're in for a real treat and almost certainly a classic edition of the program. Our guest served as our season finale guest way back in Season 2, which is stunningly five years ago at this point, almost five years, and uh, I can't believe it's been so long since we've had him on the program. I mean, the, the platitudes you could use to describe this man are 
just, I, I can't even stop if I start. Uh, he's an icon. He's a legend. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of the all-time greats. Uh, he really is truly one of the greatest minds and, and contributors to this entire milieu of the esoteric, not just one particular genre, but all of them across the board. His, his contributions are amazing. He's written over 170 books. Let that sink in, folks, 170 books. First published his uh, first book in 1965, and beyond that, he's written over 2,000 articles, the first article being published in 1956. That's just unbelievable to me. I was born in 1979, so it's like double my lifetime, I think. I'm not sure. I haven't done the math, but certainly <laughs> certainly close. <laughs> so, so he's been in this, this field just for such an amazing length of time. And as I said, he's one of the all-time greats, and it's always a thrill to speak with him. And he's bailed this program out twice now at the end of uh, two very difficult seasons. So I can't thank him enough for being there when we needed him. Ladies and gentlemen, the incomparable Brad Steiger is back. Thank you, Brad, for coming back to BOA Audio, helping us close another season. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tim. I certainly enjoyed when we spoke before, and I'm looking very much forward to it again. Absolutely, absolutely. I was thinking back on that today and over the past week or so, and, and have been just really looking forward to it. Um, well, as I said in the introduction there, it's been five years since we talked and it doesn't seem that long. <laughs> I know. I know. It's very paradoxical. You know, you say uh, back in 2007, and it's like, well, that was, that sounds so recently, but the world has changed so much. Yes. When you wrote and said, I think it's time to be on again, and I agreed, and I, I thought to myself, yeah, it's been two years at least. I didn't think it was five, but I know. as you say... Tempest goes on. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I guess uh, we, we talked a little bit about this when we when we talked originally, and uh, I think it's a good place to sort of kick things off here. And that's just sort of you know you've been in this for so long. What drives you to keep going? What drives you to keep keep doing this and not you know just head out to the lake and go fishing or uh, you know pick up fantasy football or something? <laughs> well. Uh, what what can I say? You know, any, anything I say to, in an answer to that is going to sound kind of um, canned, I guess. But I'll have to say it anyway. You know, it's, it's what drives me. It's my life. It's my passion, and I really can't think of doing anything else. I really feel, you know, a sense of mission, and I have felt this since a small child when I began. You know, almost a as far back as I can remember, having individual mystical experiences and then having a near-death experience at 11, and I've just felt it's my mission. And and I, I read something not terribly long ago uh, that people who have a sense of mission, you know, whether they're justified to have it or not is, you know, another matter. Mm -hmm. But if you have a sense of mission, then that truly... I have to choose my words carefully now. It, it makes you feel not special as a human being, but that you have this goal that you have to accomplish. And everything you do has to somehow fit into the sense of mission. Now, fortunately, I'm married to a woman who has had that same sense of mission since she was a small girl, and uh, I don't know, you know, if it if it works that well, uh, if unmissioned people marry each other. <laughs> <laughs>
And anyway, that that's it. You know, it's a sense of mission. I, I just feel that's something I have to do. And fortunately, I love doing it. You know, so it's it's from my perspective, it's the best of both worlds. And, and then, which I never thought would happen, you know, to be able to uh, not make a uh, a rich living at it but enough to sustain. Someone in the field who had that sense of mission years ago when we were kind of uh, bemoaning, you know, paying the bills and so forth that everyone has to deal with, he said, you know, I think those of us who are truly committed and devoted to this mission, we never get rich, but we are always given Enough, you know, just just <laughs> enough to sustain us, <laughs> and and I think uh, that is certainly true because the my my colleagues in this field who are really devoted to it. I mean, it's the same with them. Yeah. You know, they yeah. they get just enough, just enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that hits right at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I'm just getting just enough, <laughs> whether I like it or not. Well, I can tell you, Tim. Don't look forward to getting any more. <laughs> oh, no, man. but I, but I can tell from your work. I mean, I sense that same sense of mission and purpose. Surely, you know, everything I read about you and then your your wonderful series of interviews that you do, I, I sense that same sense of mission that if suddenly uh, they said, gee, would you co-host for Jay Leno tonight? You'd say, no, I've got to record another banal of America. <laughs> I don't think I, what kind of offer they got there. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know exactly what you mean. Well, it's an interesting, once you're in this and you're sort of chasing these mysteries, it, it really, you know, bring, it changes your perspective on the world in a way. You know, you don't really, well, it does. I don't certainly know. I mean, obviously you have to worry about money and you have to worry about, you know, the things that everybody else worries about, but you have a certain perspective about it where you realize you're just like a tiny speck of sand on a vast beach. Yes, yes. Now, uh, over the years, you've been, you know, you've been really fortunate enough to see like this sort of rise and fall and emergence and, and sort of the ebb and flow of all these different fields, which I find mm-hmm. kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. very uh, compelling because, you know, I was thinking about it when you first started. A lot of this stuff, it may have been going on beforehand, but it certainly hadn't burst on the consciousness of people like crop circles and cat emulations and abductions and stuff like right. that. Right. So I, I guess just to jump off from there, where, where do you attribute sort of how these things just emerge? That That's very interesting, and, and there's really – it's difficult to predict. Now, you can state some of the obvious, that in times of stress, warfare uh, – I was a, a tad in World War II, and I can remember how table-tipping – was so popular among people who uh, really you wouldn't think of it now in retrospect. And, of course, as a child, I couldn't judge the worldview of the adults around me. But as I grew older and I realized that some of these people, you know, who are really evangelical Christians, were table-tipping, which now probably evangelical Christians would say, what a terrible thing, that's satanic, and so forth. Yeah. And... uh Maybe I should just explain what table tipping is because uh, I saw someone write uh, 
I think it was on my Facebook, someone mentioned table tipping, and someone said, what's table tipping? <laughs> so maybe we should just mention this, where you sit on around a card table or, or any table, but generally card table is accessible to most families. Put your hands on the table, and then you say, table up, table up, table up, and one corner begins to rise. And where I heard it, I heard the ladies sitting around the table, and I was a little saying, you know, have we haven't heard from, well, in my case, it had to be my uncle, who was in Normandy invasion in Germany, and we hadn't heard for so long. And they would ask for information about him. Now, I'm sure table tipping was popular, as I said, all over America, from what I have learned since. And they were probably, probably all doing the same. Can we get contact? Now, people who normally would not even think of entering the spirit world or going into some of the more esoteric aspects of our field were engaged in it because of the stress. Now, again, the young people today see their relatives in Iraq or wherever calling home, looking at each other on a set, and and having a contact, you know, we're still not happy they have to be there, and neither are they, but they see it as their mission serving their country. But in, in that time, you know, in World War II, we wouldn't hear from our relatives for months. And then the letters would come with half of the letter blacked out. Oh, wow. Because they went through a censor, you see, before they could reach the family. Huh. So there really was that awful period, long periods of time where we didn't hear from my uncle, we didn't hear from my cousin, you know, what is happening. So moments of desperation, moments of terrible soul anguish is when people, as they say, this is kind of classic and almost cliche, will seek other than normal means of communication. So we see this as a cycle, you know, beginning with the spiritualist movement before the Civil War and during the Civil War. And it's amazing when we see the statistics of how many millions of people consider themselves spiritualists at the time of the Civil War. Now, they might also go to the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church, but then some of them were completely devoted to spiritualism, the Fox Sisters, communication, and so forth, and the spiritualist movement. Uh, even though we have a great interest in the paranormal today, I don't think, and I haven't seen any recent figures, so I'm qualifying what I'm going to say, but I don't see that the spiritualist movement has risen that much because, in a sense, even though we call ourselves a, and we are, according to <laughs> Europe and some of the other nations, uh, we are a god recognizing nation. I won't say God-fearing, but on all statistics, you know, the belief in God, we're not speaking of any denomination now, but belief in God, I see figures as high as 97% here in America. Now, but how do we then connect that with the fact that church-going is diminishing? It's more freelance now. More people recognize God, and then you see statistics of angels, incredible percentage. Uh, in England, for example, in the survey, more people believed in angels than believed in God. Oh, wow. 
so that recognition is now a one-on-one. We are freelance, if you will, in terms of our spirituality. It's almost like how, you know, there's so many people now identify as independents that are Republican or Democrat. Exactly. Exactly. And it's the same way here. We believe, we believe in, in these, uh, uh, ancient figures, but we're making it personal. We're saying, you know, the spirit moved me or the spirit touched me. And I suppose, again, this was an evolution many of us have gone through. Uh, myself coming in from an evangelical background, and now you know uh, I'm <laughs> interesting. I go into um, a Christian bookstore, for example. Yeah, and I'll pick up one book, and I see me being quoted <laughs> as evidence of um, life after death and spirituality. Then I pick up a book almost side by side, and there, of course, I'm an agent of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> but that again reflects the difference in attitudes. Uh, so, okay, we're talking about cycles, and I think the cycle today is very much do it yourself, make your own connection. Now, part of that's good, and part of that's not so good. With our ghost busting groups, for example, yeah. Sherry and I often joke that uh, every Every community in the United States with a population over 400 has its own ghost hunting group now. <laughs> now, in, in one sense, that's positive. In another sense, talking to some of them, you know, they their only background, their only study in the field. I mean, they haven't read Hereward Carrington. They haven't read Crooks. They haven't read all the giants of paranormal research. What is their background? Watching a ghost program on television they may be reading one or two books they're experts well we can all be experts in terms of our own mystical experiences but i think the what we have today is a glossing over or not even a recognition of study the time you should spend in study of the field, what has been said before, what has been done before, what are we really dealing with? Instead of watching television programs where well-meaning, well-intentioned people walk through dark places, sanitariums, hospitals, old prisons, bumping into each other and frightening each other in the dark. (laughs) Exactly. You can kind of connect that in a little way, that sort of idea, to a bit to ufology in a sense where it's like, if you really want to get into it back in the day, you you didn't have sort of the the TV shows or the internet and everything, and you had to actually do the work of reading the books and then contacting these people and and sort of exactly you know, and it was kind of self policing in a way, where you had to if someone didn't think you were doing the work, they probably wouldn't give you the time of day. So exactly, exactly. now it's like now <laughs> now they now people don't have to go to a higher authority uh, of not not like a higher authority of power, but a higher authority of knowledge. They, they don't seem to have to take that step, it seems. Right. Tough. And, and this is what I say. We, we can't evaluate the results of this yet because we're in the midst of it happening. But we were talking about cycles and, and in this field. So just step back when I really began uh, with the first books, and, and you noted the first article and the first books and so forth. At that time, there were only 
few uh, recognized writers or authors in the field. And then Time Magazine, I remember, came out with an article on the, uh, I can't remember if they, they didn't call it a cult, they, or maybe they did. But anyway, they, they gave a figure of outrageous millions of dollars that the field was making. <laughs> well, when I pushed on that, I found out that they were including Star Wars. <laughs> oh, wow. Because that was kind of paranormal, kind of mystical. And, you know, with it, may the force be with you yeah. and so forth. So they counted Star Wars and they counted uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and so forth. So, yes, it was a multi-million dollar field. <laughs> but... But, you know, Lucas and uh, Spielberg weren't sharing with the rest of us. <laughs> so those of us who, are, you know, were writing in the field, it, it has never been, oh, there have been occasional bestsellers, I suppose. But, um, you know, you get kind of the basic advance in 2012 as you got in 1966. I mean, it, and it's... Uh, uh, I have been blessed, fortunate, you know, to have a base of readership that uh, publishers can justify printing, <laughs> printing my books and our books. But in terms of, you know, uh, a great, as we're talking before, and I don't want to play this because I, I'm not doing a, you know, pitiful poll. I don't mean that at all. But if you're truly devoted to this field, you really must go into it with the idea of mission, you know, that what you're communicating and sharing with people has to be your goal. If it's to make a quick buck, it's never been there, and it surely isn't there today. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you see that kind of with these with the ghost thing. I feel like, though, the ghost thing's sort of slowing down a little bit. I'm hoping and feeling like the, like the air is coming out of that balloon finally. Yeah, and there, of course, Tim, that was a two-edged sword, wasn't it? Because people would say to me, wow, you know, your field or your field of interest is really catching on. That must be great for you. Well, TV and the Internet, the Internet especially, you know, has, has really uh, diluted the the emphasis on the field. That still doesn't indicate that people are going to go out and buy books. People are simply going to watch television and their Internet more often because Internet is, is incredible. I mean, everything is on it. We, uh, you know, even our children didn't have Internet, of course. That's how old we are, you see. Or I am. I won't speak for Sherry. <laughs> she, agree, she agreed. She agreed. Okay. Um, but even our children, you know, didn't have Internet. They didn't have any of this. And now our grandchildren, we, we see, and, and I'm not exaggerating, and I'm sure other parents and grandparents can, can verify it, two years old, and they're sitting there. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they've just made a whole new transition. So, yes, this is part of our new age of technology, but how does it translate toward serious study, serious reading, serious research? I'm not accusing all of it of being superficial, please understand, but so much of it is. 
So much of it is. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, the good part is for the people, like you said, it's double-edged sword also, too, you know, for the people who are who have that sense of mission, they could have, you know, their iPods could be full of programs like mine and other great programs where they're actually, they are doing the research, you know what I mean? Right. So it's, it's good right. for them. But you brought up an interesting point that I had later in my notes, and I've uh, skipped it up here to head because uh, it's a perfect segue, and that's... um Something that's been troubling me lately, and I've talked about it with some other guests, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it because you, you've touched on it here, and that's just sort of this, you know, frightening rise of technology at this point. And I'm not a Luddite by any means, um, you know, but it's starting to <laughs> trouble me. I finally got one of those smartphones uh, this summer, you know, and I can't put it down. And I've been, I was worrying about that before I got it. And it's like there's, there's this merging of man and machine that, that I think at this point is almost past the tipping point where I don't know if we could ever go back to no to being unplugged. Not unless there is uh, the dystopian <laughs> world that yeah. hits us and uh, we suddenly are back to caveman status. We, we can't go back. We can't go back. And as you said, you were frightened of it because you knew it would be intoxicating. And it is. Uh, again, we have resisted the iPads and all of that, but, you know, we know it's there. And something I didn't think I would ever do, but again, you have to blend. Uh, an agent friend of mine uh, wrote me not long ago and said, Brad, you have reinvented yourself so many times <laughs> over your career. Well, I've reinvented again by... Uh, the new series of ebooks that um, I'm putting out through uh, Visible Ink Press. This was something an uh, ebook. You know, I, I'm I'm a disciple of linear type. I like holding a book in my hand and turning the pages and smelling the new, the odors of ink and so forth. And yeah. in beginning, you know, when I was in college working in a print shop and, you know, setting the type in the, in the stone blocks and tying them in with string and going to press <laughs> and so forth, I feel like I was there with Ben Franklin, you know, compared to today, but it is intoxicating. And it, it does pull you in. So, you know, the Real Nightmare series now started in um, last week in October. And we have been doing one a month, but it will probably now go to um, every other month now. But that's been an experiment and something I didn't think I would ever do is, you know, have e-books. But, um, you know, and it's building slowly and seems to be working out and it's kind of my putting my toe into the waters of of the new technology. And I think we have to recognize, we all have to in this field kind of reinvent ourselves and, and see how to reach people. You know, if we really want to reach people and we're not just bathing our egos, then I think we have to keep up with what is today. And, and uh, an excellent point, uh, Tim, is you have a highly respected program, but this is one thing I've noticed where today anyone can write a book, yeah. you know, through ebook, yeah. and everyone it seems has a blog, has you know a, a radio show through the internet. And there are the good ones and the respected ones, such as yours. And then, uh, you know, and I'm not, I think it's wonderful people are getting into it. But, you know, I probably get six a week, you know, asking me oh, wow. to. And, and 
Um, these may be wonderful people. I don't know who they are. I don't know who, what their background is. And trying to do, you know, kind of check, well, what kind of program is it? We see it's, you know, I, I click on it, and we always hear, blog talk radio. <laughs> you, you too can have, you know, a program. And uh, it's, it's, when will it be surfeited? When will the field be completely surfeited and there's just no more room for this? Or is this the new trend and we should embrace it and say, yes, this is a new means of contacting. But again, for the people who write to me who are really good writers, they want to have their book published. They want to have the work and fulfill their mission, where is the space for serious research today? Where is the space? I mean, well, do you just become one of 10,000 or more blogs and 10,000 or more people who are self-publishing? And again, I read those manuscripts and I say, now what is happening? Because you see this incredible sales that Amazon says they have. You look at the books, and again, I'm not hope I'm not sounding like an like an old curmudgeon here, but the syntax, the spelling, the grammar, <laughs> you know, they would never be published if it went through, you know, a, a royalty publisher. Yeah. I mean, an editor would have had fits. But people are reading it. They're obviously embracing it. They're understanding it. I, I don't know where or what is the future of this. Uh, I saw one writer made a comment in, in Time magazine that one day a person can have a bestseller if 15 members of his family buy the book. I mean, <laughs> publishing, look at Amazon. I mean, there are just millions, millions of books. that, And, and so many of them are direct email. So you're talking about what is the future of the field and it's 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 very interesting and it's encouraging on one hand because anyone can do it but by the same token then do we diffuse the research so much that it becomes meaningless or it becomes simply one person's experience well there's also sort of the possibility that this oversaturation if you will can lead to sort of the reduction of the taboo that's associated with the paranormal. Because I do kind of feel like that might be going on as well, where... That's the double-edged sword again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which we need. I mean, we need people to be more open and willing to look at this stuff. That's <laughs> That seems to be the first step. Well, but you see, when you send me an email saying it's time again, I say, yes, I'd love to talk to Tim again, because he knows what he's talking about. He knows the field. He respects the field. Can you imagine how I feel when I say, oh, do my, and I say, well, okay, I guess I can do the blog, and then they say, okay, Brad, tell us what it is you do. <laughs> I think I am sacrificing time on my deadline to explain what I do. <laughs> Uh, they even find you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or why, I suppose, you know, they heard me on your program or some other program yeah, yeah. and say, gee, he sounds interesting. I don't really know what, it, I've never read one of his books. I don't know what he's doing, but he sounded good on that program. I'll, I'll have him on mine, you know, so. Well, it's a very, it's, it's, 
it's a different time nowadays. It's troubling. I mean, like I said, this rise of technology really frightens me in a way, and, and you know, it's... Well, you know, I, I try not to harp on this thing. Although I did look at your, I did look at your exhaustive list of books, and was happy to say that I haven't seen any 2012 books by you. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, and you won't. Thank you, thank you. That's why this man's on the season finale, folks. Yeah, he knows what's going on. But have you ever seen anything quite like this? This this frenzy, uh, if you will. I mean, around the whole 2012 thing. I, I'm personally not a big believer that anything of significance is going to happen. But it's like tremendously. Amazing to watch from the outside and see just how crazy it's become and, and just how crazy it's going to get, uh, you know, as we lead into the end of the year. And, you know, personally, as someone who really cares a lot about the esoteric, you know, I, I know we're all going to be laughed at uh, in, in 2013 for a little while when nothing happens, which is always disappointing because even though we're on the side of just thinking, <laughs> no one's gonna, no one's gonna give us credit for that. So, you know, I think the mainstream's gonna laugh at a lot of, uh, of, of the paranormal community, but just in general, what do you think of this whole thing? Well, it's again cyclical. And if you study history, as I guess I've always been a history buff, I joined History Book of the Month Club when I was 12, so I've always had a passion for history and was a history major as well as an English and psychology major. The This is, is cyclical again, and surely, you know, we had the same thing with, you know, Y2K, is that at the end of a century, we have these thoughts that we are the final generation. This is, and we can go back through history and see that the final decade in each century, people had thoughts of apocalypse. Yeah. We begin with Christianity, which is an apocalyptic cult. America was founded in apocalypse. Because Christopher Columbus, few people know this, he wasn't looking for a new world. He was looking for a place for those who survived the apocalypse to dwell. Oh, wow. He, he was an apocalyptic individual. See, I never that, that. Was his, yeah, that was his mission. Wow. I mean, of course, we've colored it through the ages, but he was very much, and he was a devout Christian, and he felt that he... Uh, again, had it was part of his mission to find a place where those who survived the apocalypse to begin a new world. So again, it's interesting. You know, I'm looking for a new world, but it was a new world for the remnants to survive. And he was, you know, again, we have so many apocalyptic thinkers through the ages that have influenced this. And unless you study and what their true motives were, of course, the, the passing decades, passing time have colored it and, oh, he discovered, you know, a new world. Well, yes, but it was to be a new world because after, of course, the, the great uh, Armageddon, those who survive will join the new world for the thousand years before Jesus comes and, and puts an end to it all. So he was looking for a place during the thousand-year period that the new people could begin and to function. So America begins with this idea that the world is going to end. <laughs> At the same time, we have the esoteric part of it, where America is to be the new Atlantis. Now, this comes from the various mystical groups in England. This is the new Atlantis. So people are going here to to revive Atlantis and bring back the glory. So we have 
one aspect of our culture, which is very futuristic and looking to the future and becoming then a, a golden age will begin in America as a golden age existed in Atlantis. And then we have the other part of us saying, oh, the world's going to end. This is the year it's going to end, 2012. Well, if you look at the Maya, and I saw an archaeologist, anthropologist, jumping on everyone's case because it's not Mayan, it's Maya. It's Maya. So, okay, the Maya calendar then. There's a cartoon that's going around. I bet you've seen it too, where the uh, Maya artist is making the calendar and saying, oh, I've run out of space. Oh, well, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) And so... And again, from what we can study in an objective way, is the best you can give this whole end of the world scheme is for them, it was an interim period. It's the end of one world, the new world is beginning. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think we see it in every aspect of our culture and society. I did a book years ago called Roadmap of Time which was built on the research of two scientists who had done an incredible research of cycles of history. Just marvelous. This is before computers. They did the work, but they had like a thousand volunteers going out and searching tree rings and various cultures and so forth. And they predicted back in the 40s uh, their work, I'm talking about Maxwell and Wheeler, their work was so precise that Nazi spies tried to steal it at the beginning of World War II so that they would see when the most propitious times for invading countries would be. (laughs) It was used, and I acquired it, from people who were getting rich off the uh, various markets, playing the markets according to it. And then they felt they wanted to share it. They asked if I'd be interested in doing a book, and I literally, I'm not exaggerating, a trailer truckload of research was delivered to my office, a trailer truckload. Oh, my. Well, like a, you know, a little uh, moth going through all this, I fared it out enough, Roadmap of Time, which instead of calling it Maxwell Real Research, I thought Roadmap of Time was really a clever title. Yeah. It didn't do anything, really. Uh, The people who bought the book and understood it, uh, loved it, the... uh, a French uh, scientific group adopted it and asked permission to use some of it, but in America it just fell flat. So now I see copies of the book are selling for several hundred dollars on Amazon. But, yeah, I want to uh, check this out. You should, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Somebody, Patrick Weege, get on this, get this book out. Sounds interesting. Right. But at any rate, what we have there is approximately the same period of time, Tim. Yeah. That... And they stressed over and over that, yes, an old world is dying. But in about 1220, 1225, a new world is being born. Now, they, as I said, they wrote in the 30s and 40s. But they predicted, I mean, exactly the kind of unrest we're having with the Wall Street occupiers, the type of uh, uh, technology that would boost us so far. We would begin to completely crawl out of one sheath and shell and begin to move into a new world. So 
I've heard that repeatedly now, and of course the New World Order is supposed to be uh, a mystical group that's seeking to enslave us and, and kill us off by the billions. But again, New World being born then, and that, that is probably, if you want to give any credence to the Maya calendar, that is perhaps the meaning there. Or maybe like, like the cartoonist said, they just ran out of space, so it ended there. Yeah, yeah. You said something that really kind of uh, made me think and, uh, when you're talking about the discovery of America. And it's just, you know, you can kind of make the connection to the paranormal in a sense where it's like, you know, I know that obviously the Native Americans were there and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Vikings discovered it before Columbus and everything. But, like, if you look right. at the the recorded history, I guess you could say, of Western culture, um, it's it's amazing and remarkable to think that we existed on this planet as a species uh, for, like, 2,000 years in this history of, uh, you know, from America back to the Romans and the Greeks and all that, and never even knew that there was this <laughs> massive continent right there on the planet. So, I mean, anytime, exactly. anytime you know, people in the mainstream, you know, rebuff the paranormal, it's like, you know, just just go back to that. I mean, we existed on the planet for a thousand years and didn't even know there was a continent there. <laughs> it's right in front of our face. Right, right. This is, uh, of course, one of my passions, as you know, worlds before our own. Yeah. And we have been stressing, uh, I say we now, Sherry has the same feeling, we're, we're emphasizing South America and as probably the cradle of civilization and going from west to east instead of vice versa because in the recent discoveries, the recent cities that have been uncovered, and uh, I'm, I'm always rejoicing when I, I saw Thor Heyerdahl before he passed, because he's allegedly a, a, I'm a cousin of Thor Heyerdahl's. <laughs> Maybe that's where the Viking uh, spirit of adventure comes in me. But at any rate, the cities that he discovered, uh, as I said recently before he passed, and some of the other cities that have been discovered since, you know, again, just uh, betoken just a, a vast civilization, a vast world that existed. Now, whether it was prior or simultaneous, it may be this, uh, again, worlds before our own, just indicates my belief, and I have to say belief, don't have absolute proof yet, that um, there was a vast global civilization before we talk about Egyptians and talk about Persians and talk about all the other ancient civilizations. And then some of the the incredible, I mean, when this one lake dried in Russia not long ago, uh, they discovered a city that would have been, as they said, the equal of Athens. Oh, wow. And they, they don't have a complete history. I wrote an, an article about it and received an email from someone who, you know, at a major university here who was a part of the dig. And, uh, he cautioned me, you know, to, to let them continue research before I write too much about it. Though I was, of course, in, you know, remarkably and understandably enthusiastic about such a discovery. But we're finding these and we're finding them in Asia. And we're finding, uh, you know, I predicted in that book, and it's always been one of my predictions, that there were at least five hominid cultures going at the same time that Neanderthal, well, there'd be two of them, 
and Homo sapiens were walking around. And now we have that. We're up to five, you know, with the Denisian culture, which we found in Siberia, because that's, that's another cousin species. I suppose we should say cousin. They aren't quite the same as ours, but like with Neanderthal, you know, 90%, 98% of the DNA, you know, they shared with Homo sapiens. So, and it is apparent, though they've argued this back and forth and back and forth, did we interbreed with Neanderthal? Now I think the evidence is quite clear, which I have believed from the beginning, that yes, indeed we did. And now we recognize that, you know, 98% of our DNA is, is identical. So, and what did they do? Did they have a culture? Did they do paint? Did they sing? Did they dance? And we're getting more evidence that indeed they did. There's an article in New Scientist just this week, you know, think like a Neanderthal. <laughs> and you see, you know, the, as best we can piece together, you know, that they, and we found, uh, not recently this cave underwater where people who, you know, first discovered it, uh, so we don't know how many discovered it before because initially the big expedition, they all drowned because they couldn't find their way out. They were oh, diving. Wow. And uh, now it's been looked into, and it's just incredible. You know, it's uh, the artwork, the quality of the artwork. It's in a cave underwater, so obviously it won't be open to tourism very soon. <laughs> because, you know, the, the paintings, the, just the uh, carbon dioxide that people have released have become affecting the painting in the caves in France. So we do have to be cautious with these incredible treasures that we're finding every year. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And and you you raise an interesting point in that it just seems like it's so hard to change the orthodoxy of stuff like uh of the idea that there was an advanced race on earth before right. before we know, if you will. And and, and right. it just seems but do you think that you know, you always hear these stories where it's like, you know, you get them at the bar after a couple of beers and they'll open up. Like do you think that that there's, there, it seems like this is intentionally suppressed. This whole idea, and, and not just the the alternative history, but just like you know, all of this, the whole paranormal is all suppressed. And you wonder why it is, and how much of of the one percent, if you will, actually know or think or care about it, and and use it to their advantage at the same time as suppressing it for the rest of us. That is a very big question, and one I have labored over. Now, when I wrote Mysteries of Time and Space, in which I had much of this information, and it's probably one of my most popular books, turned a lot of people on. Then I followed up with Worlds Before Our Own, a young archaeologist uh, friend of mine said all the things I could tell you about, but he said, I don't want to lose my tenure. Yeah. And I've had that said to me so often. Wow, the things I could tell you about. And I'd say, tell me, tell me. <laughs> and I remember this fellow said, well, he said, for example, I could tell you about the Neanderthal cave that I researched in which I found metal knives and forks. <laughs> now, these are people who are supposed to be just globbing down high-quality protein from wild animals they're fighting against all the time. Yeah. No, I don't think we probably meant that literally like the fine set of silverware. <laughs> but, but, you know, at least rudimentary that they were, you know, cutting their food and, and 
a level of civilization right, at right. any rate. Unless, you know, then some will say, well, what about time travel? Well, I don't think we need to get into time travel. That is such a romantic concept, and I never miss seeing a time travel movie, but I've never seen one that works. I've never seen one that really works. We bring up the grandfather paradox, I think, every time, is that, you know, how could you really go back and there's that great story, and I think maybe Bradbury wrote it, but whomever did, I think it's a great story, where they go back to hunt dinosaurs. Have you ever read this? They go back at, in time to hunt dinosaurs. They have, you know, millionaires, the 1% get yeah. paid, extravagant figure, they go back. But they're given the strict order, you know, don't step off the track. We have carefully marked the track where you, you stay on it, you can't get off. Yeah. And this one fellow steps off, but he only steps on what looks like a little butterfly or a moth. So he says, oh, he says to himself, you know, that can't have changed anything. I mean, I couldn't have done that. He goes back to time and finds that there's no letter E in the alphabet. <laughs> so, and of course, E is the, you know, one of the most common, but that indicates just that paradox, I think, that exists in being, how, how could you not, st- unless you don't interact, it's like some people have said the UFOs and there's time machines, time travelers. That's why they don't land. Of course, there's a whole mass of literature and personal accounts of people who have had, their, so they claim, interaction with aliens. Yeah. But the ones that mostly just seem to be flying over, that they're just observing. Well, if it's like that, if it's like, you know, the display in a museum where you can't get out of the cart, you just drive by and look at things, that is, I suppose, a possibility. But otherwise, there's always the grandpa paradox, you know, that uh, we would affect something or if you should be killed or if, you know, the... What we mean by the grandpa paradox, I assume everyone knows that what yes. if you go back and you kill your own grandfather, would you still exist when you got back? Which is an unanswerable by the same token now with quantum mechanics, physics, and I, uh, again, in scientific publications that we subscribe to, uh, every issue they're talking about alternate universes and alternate realities. And gosh, I think I'm reading uh, science fiction from the 40s when I was a kid, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and now it's become something orthodox scientists talk about, though I don't know the unanimity, but there's certainly uh, acceptance theoretically of, of different universes and different multi, multi-dimensions and so forth. So all of these things we are... I hope reaching some kind of apex of respectability for a lot of these theories that some of us have been. I remember a review of Mysteries of Time and Space when it first came out in the early 70s. I think it was in the Baltimore paper or one of the big papers said that Brad Steiger has given science fiction writers enough for the next uh, several decades. <laughs> And, and of course, I was writing it not as science fiction, exactly. but you know the you know the footprints and stone and the uh, remarkable skeletons that have been found and the Homo sapiens skeletons that have been found in rock indicative of 500 million years, and and that's a fascinating thing too. This was um, after it was dug up at the Big Indian Mine in Utah, it was sent to the University of Utah, and 
from what I can find out, the bones never arrived. <laughs> and someone said, well, cover-up, university cover-up. Well, here again, remember, this is a Mormon university. So if anyone would celebrate to the world that a skeleton of a pre-civilization, it would surely be someone of a Mormon background because that would, again, prove, quote-unquote prove, you know, the uh, Book of Mormon. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, well, you just, you get the impression that there's... Those in the know don't want us to know, and it's very, it's very troubling. That is troubling too. Or yes, it is. You wonder. You always get into the whole idea of if, it, if it's for our own good, kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> we can't be trusted with this kind of knowledge. Ever since we're children, haven't we hated that phrase it's for your own good? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now maybe yeah. when we were five, we couldn't decide what we wanted for our own good, but I think we can as we mature. I, I'd like to. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Um, and, and when we first kind of started, we were talking about the sort of the, the ebb and flow of uh, these fields and stuff. And coming off of what we've been talking about just now, it's it's pretty gratifying, at least in my eyes, because uh, I remember getting into this about nine, ten years ago at this point, and, and one of the first books I read was on Bigfoot, and that was really still very marginalized. But nowadays, it seems like uh, cryptozoology is, is like the closest thing in, in the paranormal community to being a field that's that's ready to leave the paranormal community and, and, and almost gain sort of a subsection of uh, of the mainstream science, if you will. It's, it's, I feel like it's uh, it's almost like the breakout field uh, that we've seen in the last few years. It could be. It could be. And it certainly are have many devoted people. Now, Lauren Coleman is one of my oldest friends in the field, and he certainly has not lost the faith. In fact, he's stronger than ever. Uh, I, I have mixed feelings about Bigfoot, because of my own experiences and, you know, how else do we really judge things in the final analysis yeah. other than our own experience of pursuing it so often and uh, just, just you know, having him cornered. Because, you know, when, when you're in the woods uh, of California and some of the vast spaces, but when you're here in the Midwest, you know, you there are vast amounts of uh, untilled acres, of course, and there are spots of woods, but they're spots. And when you've got something cornered and you've got 25, 30 men, you know, and you, you have the scat, you've, you've analyzed the droppings, and uh, they've been losing cattle, and the cattle have been ripped apart, their heads torn off and partially eaten, and then the remains left or scattered into the woods. And where does it go? I mean, when you've got a patch of woods surrounded by that many individuals. So, Did you ever see the creature? I've never seen just the hair and the yeah. footprint and the remaining. I've never seen him myself, no. I've certainly, uh, you know, not, not to my <laughs> chagrin as I'm, <laughs> I'm saying. I mean, it's a <clears throat> and then I've had a lot of friends who are in special forces. And we've set out, or they've set out, and they've camped, and, you know, we check in, and they've, they've heard him, they've got the footprints, they've shown me in great excitement. I send friends from special forces to different areas to report for me when I can't do it, you know, and, and these are guys who can, you know, live off the land. Yeah. Just, they can, like they 
said we could be Bigfoot. They said about themselves we could go <laughs> in and no one could find us. So you see what I'm saying there is they believe such a creature could exist and be unseen. But I've just been way back in, I guess it was 66 or 7, I said there's a UFO connection yeah. between with, with Bigfoot. And I was going to write an article for Saga, and John Keel said, no, he says, I'll, I'll bet you can't make a case for it. So my article came out, and John was uh, big enough to say, yes, you win the bet. He says, you did make a case for it. Well, I'm not saying it's the final answer, but I think in so many instances, we're seeing a multidimensional creature. We're seeing a creature from... It's here for a while, solid for a while, leaves footprints, leaves scat, leaves hair, and then is gone. Because, uh, again, not that I'm the final answer, but all the times we had him cornered. Yeah, yeah. Well, having, I've, I've, I've spoken with Rick Redfern a lot on this, and, and you know. Yeah, I was just going to say, Nick, Lauren and I, we just don't discuss it now because we disagree. <laughs> I was just going to say, but I have found an ally in Nick Redfern. He believes as I do. Yeah, especially... You know, when you look at some of these cases of like the, the UK Bigfoot, how the, the it just right. wouldn't be sustainable. But no. uh, you, you sort of bring up sort of an interesting point, and I had these in my notes, and uh, I'd written about these types of things in the past, and that's just sort of like these, for lack of a better term, sort of like these parallel species that we very well may be sharing the Earth with. You know, and then right. people right. write them off uh, as Disney, <laughs> as Disney characters. You know, but like elves and fairies and going so far exactly. as like the jinn and things like that. I mean, there's like quite a history of sort of this parallel, you know, mir- you know, parallel menagerie of, of creatures right. that may be with us. And I'm very much a believer. Again, that's. We distinguish when we say, I don't think we say we know. I think if we're cautious, we say, I believe this. Exactly. And I'm very much a believer in that. And, and I think that answers so many. Because it's been with us always, Tim. We have these accounts of these beings as far back as, as when we started you know, putting the accounts on, chipping them on stone. They've always been with us. I think it's a companion species. And having, you know, my first interaction when I was not quite five, but, you know, it's emblazoned on my mind, you know, where I literally was eavesdropping and and saw such an entity, which I probably wasn't supposed to see him. And in one way or another, you know, we've been connected all of my life. You know, we've been interacting. And every once in a while, he demonstrates that he's still keeping an eye on me. <laughs> it's strange and unfortunate too that I think that these things were much more accepted up until the modern times. Now, now they well, now they have to dress up like astronauts. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that's the difference. I mean, so much of the UFOs that I've seen, uh, I mean, obviously, I cannot offer a final definition of what can be a physical craft, but. I just can't believe their physical crafts, the type of maneuvers and the splitting in part and coming back together, and uh, they just do not seem as they could be physical. When Sherry and I were uh, in Peru, and uh, Shaman said, you know, I'll take you where you can see the angels going in and out of the water, which is what most of them call UFOs. They call them angels. But, you know, we uh, we had to go at night 
we couldn't see where we were, and he wouldn't tell us the name of the lake. So when we arrived, we didn't wait very long, and we, we did see the angels going in and out of the water, bright glowing orbs of light. And after watching for a time, Sherry just said, well, why don't you go to the left this time? And it did. Why don't you go here? Why don't you go there? And it's following her speech and it's following her thoughts. Huh. And again, I think, well, there's no way, at least, you know, in my tiny brain, I cannot see coming from Alpha Centauri going into a lake. And as dynamic and wonderful as my wife is, I can't see how she can communicate with aliens going in and out of a lake. <laughs> yes. this, this has to be some other life form. This has to be that, um, you know, somehow can pick up on the thought of the people watching. Yeah. I mean, obligingly. Why, why would, uh, you know? <laughs> and the other time I saw, uh, and many times that I've seen UFOs, because I call them that, I can't think of a more tangible term that people understand what I'm talking about, seeming to, well, at first you think of Star Wars, so that wasn't yet out when I saw these objects, these things, um, approaching each other, shooting tendrils of light at one another. Now, first you think of, oh, they're having a big battle in the sky, and they think, well, are they charging each other? Are they having cosmic intercourse up there in the <laughs> sky? And, and I'm eavesdropping. I'm seeing something I shouldn't. And then, you know, they flutter down to the earth. This was at the Mississippi River where I'm crouching in the bushes one night. Go down to the river and in a fluttering leaf motion, which has often been described, and then going back up again and having this <laughs> uh, electrical exchange or whatever. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I surely realize, you know, I'm not the great Oz of the universe, but this seems that these are not craft. I mean, they, they seem to be living things. Right, right. Well, uh as we get into this UFO thing, I gotta say, I read the 17 theories on UFOs. I thought it was just absolutely amazing. And, and, and just, uh, if folks haven't read that, I hadn't read it when we originally spoke, so, uh, having read it recently, I was just completely blown away by how, how good that is. And, and one of the, you kind of touch on that in one of the theories that, 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 that it stands to reason that some of these UFOs are actually just like creatures of some kind that we don't mm -hmm. actually understand mm -hmm. quite yet. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my mentors, uh, in the field was a, was a marvelous man. And he always said that he had witnessed on many occasions what he thought indeniably were, undeniably were creatures. And he saw once very, very dramatic where he saw this interesting cloud moving across the sky. <laughs> and then eventually the cloud dissipated and he saw one of these and he believed they were living things. He believed they were living things. And um, Faye, that was his name, but he was a man. It was a female Faye. Has some incredible pictures, which I think, yeah, some are in Mysteries of Time and Space, uh, where the beings were seen at night and moving across the sky, now he lived in Cedar Rapids where there are numerous uh, technical factories and electronic factories, and someone 
called him and said, look up in the sky, and what is it? Because he was the local expert on such things. And he saw it moving across the sky. Then it'd go back, and so it reminded him of like a typewriter carriage, for people who still remember what typewriters are, yeah. were moving back and then back. And he said that one of the listening stations there in that area of Iowa, Cedar Rapids, picked up a, a voice, though this was not made known, but they let Faye listen to it. And he said what the object or thing was broadcasting sounded like a little bit of Cahill Gibran mixed with psalms. Hmm. So in other words, inspirational, uh, positive messages, good feeling positive messages being broadcast to earth huh weird yeah yeah I've, I've, that that experience has always haunted me Faye, as i said he was one of my mentors he um just was a marvelous individual and and came you know when i was just getting into the field and here was this man who had been studying for cent you know i say centuries <laughs> because he, he seemed timeless yeah. Uh, he would approach animals. He'd approach birds. He'd lift up and birds would come. <laughs> oh, wow. Wild birds I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, dogs barking at him. They just curled up at him. He, he, uh, when he was a boy, he had um, spent time and been adopted by the Winnebago tribe. And he went on the vision quest and so forth. And, oh, wow. and he was just uh, a storehouse. He was, he was a walking storehouse of the mystical and the paranormal, and uh, it was just a very important individual in my life. Wow. And, and, and to, to get back to the, the 17 theories on UFOs, uh, I find it just, uh, you know, it, it makes the whole argument over the ETH so, look so silly when you, when you distill it the way you did in this article, because there's just so many, you know, I think if anything, there needs to be like a number 18, which would just be all of the above, because well, I feel like yes. it could be yes, all indeed. of indeed. And that I definitely agree with you 100%. I would say all of the above, exactly. And I've said that many times since. But I appreciate that you appreciated it, Tim. Uh, and that can be found on our, our website. And for people who want to examine the 17 theories, I was asked, as you know, because I told you before, to to send to a magazine my theory of UFOs. And I said, 17 is the best I can do. <laughs> Couldn't well, come my theory. Well, and the interesting part about it, and I guess the uh, the tantalizing part about about the the subject of UFOs is, is that is that it could be all of the above. Is that there's 17 possible, you know, things that could be going on with this with this remarkable phenomenon that that we still you know are are just absolutely flummoxed by. It's it's amazing. And one of the ones you mentioned is Hollow Earth. It seems like I. I I give you credit for for giving it credit because a lot of people want to write off the Hall of Earth, but I always find it one of the more enchanting concepts in the world of the esoteric. It's interesting you mention uh, that right now because I just uh, received uh, Sherry and I. We have, you know, we get emails, of course, from all over the world, but a French correspondent of ours <laughs> said, "Are these sounds? Are these sounds we're hearing?" They must be coming from Shambhala. So there, we, <laughs> so there we have the Hollow Earth one aspect of it, certainly. But the Hollow Earth theory, 
the whole concept of having a prior civilization, just realizing how harmful the sun's rays could be for one one motive to go under the earth and then the prior civilization that may have retreated there several centuries ago and all of the sightings from underground and under sea that have been seen throughout all of history. So again, hollow earth can of course be a metaphor, but certainly there's, um, there's enough that has inspired individuals all the way from Nazi scientists to Admiral Byrd to explore the idea of a hollow earth. Exactly, yeah, and it's like, it, like you said, it's, it might not be certainly literal. It could be a honeycomb earth. It could be mm-hmm. a series of mm-hmm. tunnels or something like that, or, or exactly. you know, ancient bases that that are in mountains could, in a sense, kind of qualify <laughs> for the hollow earth uh, idea. So certainly. it's certainly something that, much to the chagrin of sort of the hardliners in the uh, esoteric community, can't be something that can't be written off, unfortunately, or fortunately. I mean, I find I, I, it's one of those theories that I actually kind of wish was true. So, you know, you kind of hope that there's a <laughs> there's a whole whole interior planet. Right. Well, Ray Palmer, of course, has to be given so much credit for keeping that alive, and he was a very fascinating individual. You know, you I drove over to spend a day with him. And, you know, when you first meet him, because he's, he, with Faye and Mary Clark, Fate magazine remains of their fine work, and Phyllis Galdi's doing a good job keeping it alive. But he and, and uh, the Clarks started Fate magazine, and then Palmer left. He was with Ziff Davis, may not mean much to people today, but it was one of the big distributors of magazines. And he was the um, Amazing Stories and several other publications. And the Hollow Earth, of course, came to him as a novel. And then he said, well, let's rewrite it, rework it. And then, of course, we had the whole mystery of the Hollow Earth, which they kept going for many years. But when you'd meet Ray... He had, uh, I think it was a congenital situation, but he was a little person. And, of course, you're reading all about the UFOs and the, the greys being smallish entities, and then he, just, he was sitting up on a platform at his desk, and when he came down to say hello, of course, here's this guy, you know, a little over three feet tall coming down. <laughs> and just the expression on my face, and I'm sure everyone's, he said, yes, yes, I know, I look like an E.T. pilot. So, <laughs> but, but he kept alive so much of the whole esoterica that we, uh, we who were young when he was producing a prodigious amount of material, uh, owe him an enormous debt. Yeah. And so certainly, uh, Corresponding with him and and talking to him on the phone until the time of his death, he was he had enormous amount of rich. And of course, he was the first to have the cover of the flying saucers and the original sighting and and uh, that cover of the sighting on Mount Rainier, of course, has become a classic. And he was really the one that 
that gave that whole incident that began flying saucers, quote unquote, which is what we called them in in the day. They weren't <laughs> UFOs; they were flying saucers. That's right. Uh, he really, you know, in many ways, gets the credit for originating the the great interest, the enormous interest in. UFOs, flying saucers, but he dealt with all esoterica. All the subjects were yeah. at his command. Well, that's the great thing I I, I really love about you, and, and I have sort of patterned my work after guys like you and Nick Redfern and stuff. And it's to sort of uh, you know keep your finger in all the different pies because that's the only way Absolutely. I really get to the bottom of this stuff. Because it's a, it's the same. It, you know, you can't separate it. Uh, I can remember having lunch with uh, Hans Holzer. And he was saying, you know, you write about both, Brad, UFOs and ghosts. But he says, you know, I'm just convinced that UFO are ghosts. And at the time I said, well, that's interesting, Hans. I think that may be true in some cases. Now I have to, and I've told Alexandra, his daughter, you know, now I, I kind of have swung over to what your dad was saying, I think, in, in many great number of cases we're really seeing the same type of phenomena we're really seeing kind of a spirit level or a multi-dimensional aspect of that's why we can't separate ufos from the paranormal and of course there are people in the ufo field who revile my name rigorously <laughs> and always have since i when i wrote the first book strangers from the skies in 66 Okay, I will be fully admitting this was based on research and some interviews with individuals. It's primarily just research. Well, then, after that book became, you know, it was on the paperback bestseller list in two weeks because it was perfect timing. That's when J. Ellen Hynek was quoted or misquoted, however you want to say it, as saying the Michigan lights were swamp gas. And as he tried to clarify probably the rest of his life what he was really saying, that, you know, that, that made all the papers. That made all, so it was timing. And just then my book comes out. So everyone wants flying saucers were in the air. They're on the mind of the, they were the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah. So that book just, you know, sold off and, and really established me uh, as a UFO writer, but much to the chagrin of most of the flying saucer groups because I'm the guy who writes about ghosts and weird things. <laughs> well, as I then thought, well, you know, I'm really going to get into this, and I got so many letters, and I literally then traveled through most of the, I think, eventually all of them, the states, and most of the provinces of Canada, talking to contactees. <laughs> and as I heard story after story, I thought, okay, now this is long before Internet, and there aren't shows on all the channels because there aren't channels other than the, <laughs> alphabet, net, other than the alphabet networks. So if I'm talking to a woman in Illinois... And then talking to a man in Vancouver, Washington, within a few days, and they're telling me the same story, the same message from the occupants. I know they don't know each other. I've demonstrated that to my my acceptance. 
how can they be telling the same story and why does it sound so much like the same information that I've been hearing from mediums in spiritualist camps? Yeah. Interesting. We've got to clean up the earth. We have to love one another. There's a dimensional shift coming for the entire human species. Those who are ready for it will raise their vibration. I mean, the same message. Yeah. And again, is this something you come from Alpha Centauri, or at that time it was Venus, of course. I say of course because this is our sister planet, and Mars, of course, was also a great uh, favorite, Mars or Venus, because they're the closest planets, so why not? Exactly. Yeah. But is this something comes from wherever you want to designate, Mars, Venus, or Alpha Centauri, they come all the way and they tell us this? I mean, this is the same thing that we can hear uh, depending on your denominational preference. You can hear <laughs> church on <laughs> exactly, Sunday yeah. morning, or you can sit in the spiritualist camp, and you can hear Shooting Star, the spirit guide of the medium, telling the same message. So at that time, I thought, well, you know, there really is an interlap that cannot be denied. And then talking to the individuals who sighted UFOs on the ground, what message? And in spite of all the uh, angry messages I got from fellow searchers that researchers that you're supposed to feel frightened, you're supposed to be run in terror, and you're supposed to, I would say the majority of people told me that when they saw the object on the ground, they felt peace, they felt a sense of well-being, and they then repeated the message, the entity, the cosmonaut, the Euphana told them, and it was basically that same message again. There's a great change coming for the human species. You're going to raise your level. You're going to go into another vibration and this dimension and so forth. And I thought, well, either they think, you know, that we're all potential evangelists here on Earth, or they think that we're so, we're a bunch of louts and, and uh, predators upon one another that we need to hear this spiritual message. But I thought if it's take me to your leader and we take him to the president and, we, and the entity tells the president to prepare for a fifth dimensional shift for the species. <laughs> <laughs> but again... Who can judge? Maybe they are. And, and that's why I wrote the book and the article, uh, UFO Missionaries. That's why, you know, because is that what they are? Are they missionaries from another planet, uh, thinking we're in such bad shape? And, and, you know, they might look at us and say we're such primitive barbarian savages that that's the message we need to hear. We're not ready to share their science. We're not ready to share their insights. We're not ready to back machine their fallen UFOs. I mean, right. to me, we can't separate paranormal, psychic, and UFOs. And that's will upset many people when they hear me say it again, but it's <laughs> just my, my conviction based on Wow, a lot of decades of research now. Exactly, exactly. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? That's a good sort of segue here to what I was thinking here as you were talking about 
meeting with all these contactees and stuff, I always have found it interesting, and obviously you've seen this firsthand. You saw the change firsthand, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who still have these contact experiences, but the contactee era for what it is, you know, that that gave way to the abduction era, and it was like a very yeah. drastic change, a very stark difference between the two types of contact, no, no pun intended, you know. It, was, it went seems to have gone right from hey, you know, you guys are messing things up, we want to help you, to a very different scenario. And, and, and you know, I've, I've, I have my issues and skepticism about where abduction research has gone today, but, mm-hmm. but even still, uh, you know, it's a very interesting turn of events, if you will, this change from, from friendly visitors to people that are experimenting with us or, or you know, want... It seems like wholly different races, if you will. Uh, yeah, that I feel the same as as you do and i i just call them contactees yeah because uh, here again when you've actually been in the field and talking and going out and talking with hundreds of people who claim this experience certainly the abduction cases they they were there from the from the beginning tim Mm -hmm. but we thought well i said many times that I think the examination is, again, another metaphor. Uh, if you are initiated into certain tribes, uh, the society puts on a mask. They come to take you from your home at night, and then you are either um, given certain tattoos or certain marks on your body and now you are a member and I saw this as you know our kind of some people's metaphor for initiation or for well first of all I I think 98% at least of everything we've talked about tonight Tim is the individual mystical experience these are all individual mystical experiences so this is the experience of initiation there's a part, there's a level, there's a level of the psyche for certain individuals who are ready to make a transition in their thought from a strictly servile servitude <laughs> to, to their culture and their demand for the physical, their demand for the material. A level of their psyche says, I'm ready for the spiritual. But because I'm a child of my time, I can't just say, wow, I was on the road to Damascus and the light shined in my eyes. I have now seen a prototype. Certain researchers have shown this image of this strange-looking semi-reptilian creatures that come in the night and give you a physical. (laughs) So this is an examination. They combined the mystical experience with their image of the only thing they know that's comparable, a physical exam in the doctor's office. (laughs) That's why, how how many describe the entities as, you know, little doctors, little physicians? Put them on a stretcher, do, uh, you know, poke them and prod them, and that's what a physical is. You're being poked and prodded and examined. And then these people come back and they really have the same message as the 
contactee using the former meaning of contactee, but they now incorporate that they've been actually initiated. They've had the pain which goes on so many levels of our subconscious and our memory and our our um, genetic inheritance through centuries of evolution that initiation requires pain. So there has to be some physical pain to accompany the spiritual uh, transformation. I mean, the road to Damascus experience, what did Paul receive? He went blind. He went yeah. blind until someone brought his sight. See, there is that physical aspect that has to be given up or has to be sacrificed along with this mystical experience. Then, of course, there's the whole matter of the people who, the researchers, I respect them from their point of view, who say that these are physical examinations, that they are bringing about a crossbreeding of our species and theirs. They are implanting, and again, Tim, we heard this back in the 60s. Yeah. It didn't just happen in the last uh, few decades. We heard the same stories then. But maybe we didn't give them credence or we saw them as metaphors or symbolic expressions. And then, you know, after a certain amount of enormous publicity given to one type of experience, which involved all sorts of uh, sexual uh, innuendos and metaphors (laughs) to describe the experience some people had, and it just seems to be uh, a way of mass communication. And once we see the prototype, and we see it in a movie, we see it on a screen on our television of what this person underwent. Now we have a prototype for the experience. That must have been what happened to me. They violated me sexually, they examined me, there was pain, they stuck needles in me, and all of this is combined and swirls about in one physical experience, whether pseudo or real, because we won't be final judges, will we? Whether, you know, it's real, but then it is combined a pseudo-real experience or real experience, to give them the credit there, is combined with a spiritual experience, and now it truly becomes forceful. It truly, I have been initiated. Very interesting, yeah. Makes you really think about what is going on with this. What, you know, initiated into what? That's the scary part, you know. What, what is it leading us down towards? Well, people are desperate right now for authentic spiritual experiences. That's true, absolutely. But they, yeah, they, they don't feel comfortable going back to the pews that they left when they became rational in college or whatever and they didn't want to go back to the priest or the pastor. But they want that same kind of belonging. I want to be a member of a fellowship, a fellowship of, and that's, that's the name, just coincidentally of one of the books that we wrote about this experience, The Fellowship with Doubleday, uh, describing this kind of universal experience for fellowship. And this gives them a pattern. This gives them a modality. This gives them an expression. And now it's estimated, oh, my Goodness, what's the figure? So many million of individuals have uh, allegedly gone through the abduction experience. It's just astonishing, it sounds like. And 
Yeah. As my, my good friend Tim Beckley said, you know, my gosh, it's up to the millions now that have been abducted. When were these aliens ever? We were not that different, you know, from one another. <laughs> when will they have enough specimens and leave us alone? <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. You wonder what they're... I've read a lot of Jacques Vallée, and he, he introduces a lot of sort of paradoxical questions, you know, of why, what, what is behind these things? What, what is their motivation? Why are they, because it doesn't seem like, like you said, you know, when are they going to have enough stuff? You don't really know. Right. <laughs> now, you, when you were talking about uh, Palmer, it, it made me think, did you ever, uh, did you ever encounter Long John Nebel? Were you ever on his program? Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Talk a little bit about that experience because, you know, that was well, quite a while ago and, and I think really the, you're one of the few people I think I've interviewed that, that would have appeared on the program and, uh, you know, had that experience. So I guess talk a little bit about that and what that program was like because I'm sure people who've heard my show, they're, they've heard of Long John Neville. We've had, uh, Greg Bishop is a huge fan. That's partially why I'm asking you about this because I know that he'll be interested to hear, you know, your perspective on, on the program and being on the show. But, you know, tell people what it was like and, Sort of give them an idea of what this whole uh, Long John Neville thing was. Well, yes. Um, there are so many aspects about Long John. Now, I was not on often because you had to come to New York. You know, this is, uh, in those days, you and I are talking, either you'd have to come here or I'd have to go there, and I'd probably have to go there because you ha you would have the studio. So if I did a show in Pittsburgh, I had to go to Pittsburgh. Oh, I wow. couldn't do it with the convenience. So that, I mean, that's what it meant. So to do Long John, you had to come to New York, and I can't remember if I was on with I, my another of my mentors, Ivan T. Sanderson, uh, and him. I can't. I'm drawing a blank. Who was there? Candy Jones was, of course, his wife, and we have that whole mystical experience about Candy Jones. You know. Oh yeah. Long John treated me very well, uh, and. His idea was to, you know, pretty much as as you do, let the individuals talk, and people would call in with with various comments. Uh, people will be offended uh, if they say, you know, he was before Art Bell and he was before uh, others who are given credit for this type of thing. And, and Art, of course, did a marvelous job, and so does George, and so does Jeff Rents and Alan Handelman. They, they've all been in it for years, and they all do a magnificent job. Mm -hmm. But Long John was there first, and you sat around a large, round table. It really was, you know. You felt like you were the knight of the round table coming to the master of the nighttime airways. It would just be a free-flowing discussion. He would start it with a very topic. And I will always remember, always remember, when he said to me, Brad Steiger, you have an open mind, but it's not so open that your brains won't fall out. <laughs> and I've always cherished that because that was early in my career. That was in 66 that I was on the program. And... I was getting quite a bit of static at that time because this was, you know, this was not an uptime for the paranormal. And so I was discussing my theories and so forth at that time. And Long John then was, was an innovator 
for putting this information out to the public, and it did very well. He was very successful, as we all know, or we wouldn't be talking about him yet today. Absolutely, yeah. Now, another guy that I was thinking of uh, when I knew I was talking to you, I uh, figured maybe you might have crossed paths with him, is uh, Anton LaVey. Did you ever run into him? <laughs> uh, yes. What? You're laughing. What's that? What's well, we had an there? interesting relationship, and uh, I, I recorded interview with him and it was frightening to me how much we sounded alike couldn't really tell when he was talking and when I was talking <laughs> but I had written books which he interpreted as attacking Satanism so um, we had a little feud going for a while which I didn't inspire but he did so we finally got together and said, you know, well, come on, let's let's be gentlemen about this, and and so we sat down and had a great talk, and um, he has left us. He left on Halloween, which I thought was very appropriate of him. I'm glad he worked it out that way. <laughs> uh, his his daughter is is running the Satanist church now, and um, oh, forgive me, the bishop, I lost his name, so. If he hears this, uh, I apologize. Uh, Anton, of course, was uh, not really a disciple of Satan as much as he was of uh, personal aggrandizement. And uh, that's really what you, I think you have to say about Satanists. They, they don't kidnap babies. They don't do sacrifices. He got a lot of publicity from getting um, a very attractive model to serve as his nude altar when the press would come. The whole thing with he and Jane Mansfield has been exaggerated. Uh, the Anton LaVey curse that allegedly caused her death yeah. and caused her to be beheaded. Well, she wasn't beheaded. It's just when they first came on the scene, her wig had yeah. come off and they thought it was a head. So Anton LaVey was a showman. He had come from a carny background, a circus background, and he knew how to pitch. He knew how to work the public. He knew how, and that still is the the church, as I said, it's being maintained. But it, it's not, it, it's really um, disciples of personal aggrandizement. If you want to be uh, strict and say greed, then you can. <laughs> but um, not in causing harm to others, but in aggrandizing their own personal situation. So he he was uh, an interesting fellow and and uh now we came to we came to respect one another for who we really are and what our particular role is in this whole cosmic uh, carnival. There you go. Now was he you said it was fighting because you guys sounded the same, and, and you know I've seen the pictures. <laughs> I've seen the pictures of him, and he looks—he looks like a very frightening person. But I can imagine also, it, it's kind of like you know if I sat down to eat with Andre the Giant, you know, I mean, he, it, you, after a while you'd probably kind of just realize that he's just like you. Was he sort of more more of a man than a, than a mythos? Like when you actually sat down and talked to him, you know? Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely, absolutely. As I said, he was a showman, Tim. He knew how to sell it. He knew how to sell it. I mean, he's starting uh, a little uh, organization, and there are, Lord knows, thousands of organizations for people to <laughs> pay uh, their attention. So how is he going to get something? I mean, he so he advertises, he's 
the devil on earth and Satan's representative and and then he had the black church in San Francisco and their human altars and human altars that suggest human sacrifice and he just played it for everything he could he was a showman his background was you know a circus barker so he he, he maintained that he he had that commanding presence and he knew it and he had that uh, of course now I sound like I'm patting myself on the back but he had that resonant uh, commanding voice <laughs> and and he knew how to work it he knew how to work it very interesting yeah yeah well it reminds me of the conversation we originally had where you know it's you've been in this so long you've sort of seen not just sort of like the the change of the paranormal but just sort of the change in how people feel about the paranormal and right, you know it was right. exciting you I remember you, I recall you saying that you know it was an exciting time like in the 60s and stuff and oh it was it's um had incredible nostalgia for that particular time because it was also new i guess we all have nostalgia for a time when everything is green you know and, yeah. and everything is growing but uh Every once in a while, talking to Tim Beckley, he'll say, Did I just remember the way it was? I mean, we just arrive and the auditorium would be packed. I mean, <laughs> people always say is, you know, we're coming to town and giving a lecture and packed. And, of course, what we were bemoaning that is, you know, you're preaching to the choir now, which is wonderful. Uh, but. I, I don't know how many go to universities and so forth, you know, and the auditorium would be packed with both professors and students. I, I don't think that would happen at all today because there's television and most of all the Internet. So why should you pay five bucks, you know, and you can just click on your machine? Right, right. That's the Yeah, it, it's tough, too, you know. You, you When you talk about that, too, it makes you think, it's just like it's hard to, you know, and I know this is a loaded term, so forgive me, but it's hard to find fellow travelers nowadays, too, you know, when you're around people. It's like it, it, this thing's, this whole paranormal community has become splintered, in a sense, uh, by people on their computers. And, you know, there's still individual groups, you know, let's not even talk about the ghost hunting groups, but there's still, like, you know, UFO organizations, but they're small, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's becoming a less personalized field, in a sense. Well, and then UFO groups, and this is one, from my perspective, I should always say, from my perspective, this is a truism. UFO groups spend more time fighting each other <laughs> than they do in advancing their cause. I mean, this is from the beginning. This is my case. This is my case. I did the interview. You can't write about it. You can't refer to it. But, you know, your case is giving a piece of the great puzzle that I can work in with my case and what I'm writing in this article. Absolutely not. I didn't. I mean, you don't run. I've never run into that in the um, metaphysical field, the paranormal. Yeah. The um, My fellow authors about the spirit world, and there's never been that. There's always been a companionship. But in the UFO field, from the very beginning, I mean, it was hostility and uh, possessiveness and and I haven't seen it change right right I, I was talking about this at the end of the program uh, on the last episode for folks who were listening to this um, that that yeah you, you touched on that that the UFO community 
as I said at the end of the show, was uh, it, it's fraught with a lot of psychological issues, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, a lot of baggage attached to the community of UFO research. It's, it's remarkable in that sense. A lot of insecurity, I find, and a lot of turf wars. Kind of like what you said about how you came along and you wrote the book. It's like there's, there's this sort of like you're with us or you're not us and them. This, this mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. strange in that regard. And you really don't see it in a lot of the other communities. No, no. It's very strange. And it still pretty much exists. The, um, the, the real friends and the real researchers that I, you know, cherished from the beginning, like Jerry Clark and Kevin Randall, uh, and I mentioned Tim Beckley, who's, you know, one of my oldest friends in the field. The sharing and the support of one another has never failed there, but then I don't know how much, many inroads I've made. <laughs> you know, it's, it seems that the people who began when, the time when I did, and I, I, this is something I'm trying delicately to say, uh, maybe we we had a bit more of the attitude of let's really find out what's happening here. Yeah. Let's let's really look at it instead of collecting cases, just collecting cases. But why? What's happening here? Why is one person saying this? One is one person seeing this? What is really behind it? And I'm not saying there aren't others than the ones I'm named. I'm just naming, you know, people who have been personal friends of mine for for all these many years. Yeah. I'm and I'm as I say, there are many fine researchers in the field. I'm not picking. I'm just speaking from. I think those who ended at a certain times, and then there are people I notice um, who feel that they have new insights today, and they talk about. You know how much there the old guard has to make way for these new thoughts, and I read these websites and they're talking about the same thing. I haven't seen anything new yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're going over there's they're going over the same cases and they're saying the same things that we said in the sixties and early seventies uh This is a field that I, do you agree with me, Tim? I don't think it ever really progresses the UFO field. Uh, people have their pet theories, too many of them. Uh, they won't embrace or accept or incorporate anything else. They stay with it hardline. And, um, it doesn't advance. It, it, we're still basically collecting cases. I mean, it's still, there I mean, hasn't yeah. been. I, well, I'm in absolute agreement with you. It's, it's this, the field has failed to evolve. Uh, yes. and, and that's the difficult part. That, that's, you know, that's, I think that has a lot to do with why we haven't gotten to the bottom of this, and along with, uh, you know, I think that the, that there was a real chance there, and, and, and somehow it got blown. I, I, I've always likened it to, uh, you know, when the whole Blue Book thing, even though that was kind of PR, when the Condon thing shut mm-hmm. up, shut it mm-hmm. down, I kind of look right. at that era, that point, as sort of like the death of, of classic ufology, and really where, we needed to keep going, and from mm-hmm. there it, it just it, everything kind of went haywire from there, and hasn't really ever recovered from that period because people were willing to give it a chance back then, and now they're not. Yes. And we we have a tremendously difficult uphill battle of public relations to sort of recapture people's imaginations on this. And here again, please, you who are listening, don't take this the wrong way. 
But as Tim mentioned, with my 17 theories, if there would be an 18 theory, say all of the above, if more people were open to all of the above, I think maybe we'd make some kind of progress, or maybe we're not supposed to. And I'm not saying that with a stentorian voice coming from the clouds, <laughs> but but maybe this is a science and a mindset that we're not quite prepared for yet. Maybe we're moving into it. Uh, Hynek said, you know, before he passed, that the UFO was probably a, a forerunner of a new science. And I think we see glimpses that we can see parallel our universe. And I'm not talking about extraterrestrially now, but just our mindset, you know, as we move from one paradigm to another. Maybe we get glimpses of it. Maybe we see little previews of it. Maybe none of us are ready to really understand and embrace it. Now, I just have always had the feeling, and Sherry, who, you know, was Hynek's promotional director in the last years of his life, and she has the same feeling, thank goodness, or we'd be quarreling over it. And <laughs> one, should, one shouldn't quarrel with one's spouse, but that whatever this mystery is, and it's the great mystery, I think it somehow affects us in every aspect of our lives. And maybe that's why we have a mental block to really see clearly what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. It's it, that's deep. It, it absolutely, yeah. It, it runs the whole gamut, and the, the mental block I think is, is is critical. I think you're right about that. It's not. It's that's the frustrating part about it, and I've talked about this with other people on the show. Where it's like you know, people should care more about this. This is like the greatest story of all time. This is the yes. you know, people should this should be exciting people beyond belief, but it just doesn't. And and it, you know. You can connect that to, you know, just the suppression of it to the point where people have been given up, I think, too. I think that's mm -hmm. part of it. Yeah, I think so. You I know. think so. I, I really do. Because part of it's like that you, you talk to uh, everyday people, and it seems like their general attitude is that the UFOs are real, the government's covering it up, and they're, they're not going to tell yeah. it. And then they, that's it. They get, <laughs> there's that's no it. righteous indignation. There's no outrage. No. <laughs> it's, it's, no, I, I, it's I agree. I agree. And you wonder what it would take, but I think that I, I feel like you know, as we're as we're sort of getting toward the end of this conversation, you know, I feel like we we are in in strange times. Something mm -hmm. something is afoot. I don't know what it is, but something is afoot. Absolutely, and uh, just you're saying that because we say it so much to each other, Sarah and myself. I'm getting a shiver up my back when you say that because I I, I feel that intuitively, as you obviously do, and many, many others feel it. Something is going to happen. So in one sense, that message of the contactee, which in the fellowship I basically say is just, well, let me preface it slightly here. When the new age phenomena really struck, uh, that was a time when Sherry and I were out lecturing. We were on the circuit then. We were gone sometimes uh, three weeks, at least two weeks, a month, every month. And people there would say, you know, I, I feel that something is about to take place. That really brought them 
but they would say also, I used to be a devout Roman Catholic, but I left the church to join this New Age group. I used to be a solid Lutheran Baptist, fill in the blank, but I left to join this New Age group. Now, some people we'd maintain contact with, and that was before email. <laughs> so they actually got letters from people following up. And then, of course, we've had that, you know, the Steiger questionnaire now for years. About 40,000 people from all over the world have filled that out, which is interesting. But at any rate, they, they would say, now I was this group, and I got disillusioned. Because it just turned into... Well, maybe it wasn't Mother Mary, and maybe it wasn't Jesus, but they took collection. (laughs) (laughs) There there became an autocrat who was dictating to us, and we would be amused because what they did was exchange one regulated format of spiritual expression for another. Yeah. And, and there seems to be that pattern within us that, that we just keep replicating the old ways, desperately trying to make them new. But we fall back on the only patterns we know. So now we're coming to a mode of thought, and maybe maybe the contactees get some credit. Maybe that is what these entities I doubt they're from outer space, but maybe these entities that have been our companion species that have been with us since before we stood upright as a species are telling it it's time to get our act together and get ready for another leap in thought, in attitude, in approach to life. The old ways are dying. A new world is being born. And... We are having, as with any birth, we're going through the birth pangs. And for most of our species, it hurts. There's a lot of pain because you, how can you leave behind the old that no matter how ineffectual in some cases has provided for you and provided sustenance in others? Now are we going to have to look at the new technology for one thing? which is totally absorbing. Who, who can predict Space Odyssey? The computer there was as big as the whole darn ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and they say that uh, the computers they used to put our first astronauts on the moon would now be in a laptop. <laughs> so how can we be prepared for this blending, this melding of the human spirit and technology? which is in so many ways more like the mind, more like the ephemeral spirit than any mechanism we've ever dealt with in our history, our known history. Maybe we've gone through this before, as some of us theorize. Maybe we didn't meet the challenge. Maybe we're being prepared to meet the challenge and this time survive better than we were before. Yeah, could be a series of steps, if you will, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. next, <laughs> the next generation. Childhood's end. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's interesting, you know, it, it's exciting. This is, that's really, you know, we kind of kick all this off with we'll talking about why, why you keep doing this. And it, it, the same thing kind of resonates with me, you know, it's, it, this is really, 
when you talk about these kind of things, like we've been talking about the last two hours, it makes life so much more interesting than than, <laughs> than to talk about what's on TV or what the latest movie is. I mean, there's just so much. It really fills you with a sense of wonder and awe. And as you say, Tim, that's why we do it. Yeah, really. That's why we do it. You said it very well. That's why we do it. I feel like the this emergence of the technology it, it almost kind of goes into the idea of like what, what Casey was talking about with this idea that like this sort of like this internet of the ether. Like maybe we've actually just sort of finally put the foundation to that internet, to the ether, I, I, if you will. Do you know what I mean? I I think that I resonate very much with what you just said, and then in one way that's what I was trying to say before. Well. And thank you for, um, you know, enriching my thought. Uh, that is what's happening, I think, is going to be, this is, we really can link in the group mind. We really can do that for the first time. Now, is that good, that we have a group mind like ants and bees? Is that really a good thing? <laughs> or what our, our lesson now must be is how to properly utilize this new technology, how to really be good husbandmen as a species, how do we really take care of ourselves and embrace the new technology at the same time? Right, right. And I think, too, to what you're saying is also that, you know, if we're, it's like inevitable and almost like you said before, you know, we can't really unplug ourselves from this thing. And I think it's critical for all of us to you know, to maintain the individual while being still a part of that larger global right. mind. I think that's the. I think that's one of the big challenges that that the human race is going to face in the future. Yeah, exactly. And as you said earlier, you know, neither am I a luddite, and I'm proud of you for knowing that word, Tim. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which you know simply means those who would rather cherish uh, the old ways and, and reluctantly uh, embrace the new um certainly not luddites and neither one of us and probably everyone listening to your your broadcast here are, are not luddites but yet i think we have because and let's hope we all are responsible individuals and we want to do this in the right way so often our species has embraced a new idea to their detriment. Now let's take the time to embrace it to our improvement and our enrichment. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's the key part of it all, and we'll see how it all unfolds. I mean, it's it's going to be an interesting. It's going to be certainly going to be a very interesting year. I know that for sure with this whole 2012 thing and, and beyond. I think it's going to be very interesting because the. As exciting as what we're talking about now is, the, the human race is in bad shape. <laughs> you know, the, the economy's in the toilet and the pollution is terrible and it seems like people are more abrasive than ever before. So it, it's, it makes you wonder what's going on. This is, it's a schizophrenic nature to it all. You know, it's like there's this, there's this overwhelming hope at the same time as an overwhelming state of, uh, you know, confusion and fear and terror and, and, and desperation. So it's a it's a really weird crossroads we're at. Exactly. And again, birth pangs, aren't they? Birth pangs. A new world is being born, and a good chunk of our old world is dying, or at least, let's say, in transition. 
I like in transition better than nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the change from uh, Department of War to Department of Defense. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, next time I do Banal of America, what changes will have taken place? Who knows? Now, uh, in the interim, what do you have going on? I know well, as we were setting up the interview, uh, you, you had some big deadlines that you had to meet, and I'm sure, you know, 170 books, I have a feeling you're not slowing down anytime soon. So what can people look forward to here as 2012 unfolds and into the future? Well, we uh, at that time, uh, we <laughs> uh, have just come to the, uh, well, I suppose there's always the little, you know, picky stuff you do afterwards, but... Uh, we were doing an update of our conspiracy book, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the Complete Dossier, which, again, what a challenge that is because so many things are in transition. It was so difficult to choose what to add new. The updating, of course, was an enormous job because so many things have, have progressed. And then I'm in the process now of doing... Uh, the second edition of The Real Ghost, Restless Spirit, and Haunted Places, which has been, well, both of these books have been very successful, and to do updates or second editions, you know, require a lot of energy from both of us. So we have literally been working around the clock and now trying to get back on some type of schedule that relates to our fellow humans around us is going to take some time, I think, because we were literally working till noon, straight through till noon, and then we'd lie down for a while and then start again. I mean, it's been days since we've seen the sun in the afternoon, only in the morning, because that's we go to wow. after that. So I don't know how we're going to readjust our schedules. May never will, but that's why I was so... Um, grateful when you said you could record late at night. <laughs> Absolutely. That's when I prefer to record. That's when I'm at my best. And, oh, good. You know, that's yeah. when, uh, that's, that seems like that's when the creepies and the crawlies come out at, to play anyway, <laughs> so it's perfect. Well, that's when you, you can really narrow your thoughts and focus your thoughts. Absolutely, yeah. There's nothing quite like, I recommend this to people. I used to work the overnight. There's nothing quite like going out even if you have to run to the store, like at three in the morning, there's a peaceful, mm-hmm. there's an amazing peacefulness to it that you just, it's, you know, it's, it's akin, even if you're driving in, in like a downtown place where there's not that much traffic or I live in the suburbs, so there's like no traffic, you know, it's almost akin to like being by a lake. You, well, you really mm-hmm. feel a sense of peacefulness that's hard to put your finger on. Well, we are by a lake. And that's when we did our grocery shopping last night. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. So. Nice, nice. And you're the only one there except the guys packing. And because that's when we shop, um, of course, all the packer guys give us greeting and the cashiers that are on duty give us a big greeting because I guess when we arrive, we kind of break their monotony of overnight hours. Absolutely, and I've heard from a lot of folks out there. They may not be working the overnight, but they're listening right now at their jobs and stuff. And we're helping them get through that, so that's that's one of the big thrills of what I do. So, right. and it's great to have you back. And and you know, on that note, Brad, I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolutely amazing conversation once again. Two hours have gone by like <laughs> like unbelievable. I can't believe we've we've been talking here for two hours. We didn't even take a break or anything. We were just going full bore on this, and I, I've enjoyed it so much. And I promise it's not going to be another five years before we have it back on the program because that's been way too long. As a, as a lifelong Bob Dylan fan, I, I hardly call you the Bob Dylan of the paranormal because you're still in this. 
companion. I'll accept that. There you I'll go. accept that with thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you are, you know, you are still out there and you're still doing stuff and you're still producing amazing content year after year after year and it's been over five decades now. It's just unbelievable your contribution to this field and it's a thrill. I, I'm so humbled by your kind words tonight. I'm just really blown away. So thank you, sir. And it's been a real pleasure to have you back and I can't wait to talk to you again. I can't wait either. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And that's, as I said, and, and it wasn't uh, you know gratuitous. I meant it sincerely. It's it's always a delight to ha- be interviewed by someone as well informed and well read and as passionate about the field as you are. I mean that that's why the two hours went by so fast. So I attribute that to you, Tim. No, thank you very much, Brad. And once again, thank you so much for helping us uh, close out the season and. We'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. Take care, my friend. That does it for the Brad Steiger portion of the BOA Audio Season 6 season finale. Big, big thanks to Brad for coming back on the program and for helping us close the book on another season of BOA Audio. Be sure to check out Brad's website, www.bradandsherry.com. And seriously, folks, pick up one of Brad's 170 books because you are in for the ride of your life and quite the trip down the paranormal rabbit hole. Before you tune out, there's still more to come here on the BOA Audio Season 6 season finale because we've got Whitley Streber. That's right, my friends. Whitley Streber joins us here on BOA Audio to add the cherry on the top of the season finale. And since I feel like you're probably... Well in the groove here of the season finale, we're going to skip the long preview and bio portion of our normal introductions. But of course, let's plug Whitley's new book, Solving the Communion Enigma, and his radio program, Unknown Country, as well as his website, www.unknowncountry.com. And with all that said, let's continue onward here and rock and roll. This conversation was recorded on January 26, 2012, Whitley Streber, talking about solving the communion enigma on the season finale of BOA Audio, Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, continuing onward here with our Season 6 season finale special, we've got another amazing guest to help us close the book in another season of the program. I'm talking about the author of Communion, the host of Unknown Country. He's also the author of just countless books, dozens of books, and he's the author of the new book, Solving the Communion Enigma. To call him a legend in the world of the paranormal would really be an understatement. He is simply an icon of esoterica, and it is a thrill to finally have him here on BOA Audio. I'm talking about Whitley Strieber. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for that fairly amazing introduction. <laughs> Well, I've had a lot of time to think about when we get you on the program, so it's uh, it's been a real thrill, and a lot of people have been wanting me to talk to you for a long time. Now, we have you for a very limited amount of time, so I read the book last night, absolutely loved it, introduces so many amazing concepts that I had never really considered with regards to this UFO phenomenon, and I've been looking at it for years and years and years, and was just really appreciative of that. So since we only have you for a short period of time, I want to kind of just dive into some of these big themes that I noticed in the book. One of the things that really stood out to me, and it's a recurring sort of thought in solving the communion enigma, is that this idea of infinity and the knowledge of infinity as sort of this death sentence, this claustrophobic 
idea, which is something I never really thought of before. And then you tie that in to, and uh, you got it from an article from the 70s this guy wrote, uh, that maybe these visitors need to observe our culture, and thus they can't really interfere with us because it would destroy the resource that they're actually here to harvest, if you will, which is the knowledge and understanding of us. And that's driven by their knowledge of infinity as a death sentence. Just amazing stuff. Talk a little bit about sort of this concept that's in the book. All right, well, this was a brief paper. It was, this idea was sparked by a brief paper that was published in the magazine Science in April of 1977 by uh, D.B.H. Kuiper and uh, Morris, I believe Michael Morris, two physicists, and where they speculated on whether or not if E.T. ever showed up here, it would be an open thing or it would be secret. And he, they concluded that in all probability, this, they, they would keep themselves very hidden for two reasons. One, that if they revealed themselves, they would immediately disturb our culture in the same way that when Westerners showed up in tribal areas, isolated tribal areas in the 19th and 20th centuries, the cultures, the local cultures tended to be wrecked because people saw that the Westerners had much more vibrant and effective technology and they felt disempowered by this. Mm -hmm. And this has been a problem in, um, in, in these cultures ever since. American Samoa has one of the highest alcoholism rates in the world and it's because people are they feel very disempowered, uh, even embarrassed by their own cultures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that was one thing, but it, it, the other thing, that, the more interesting to me part of the paper was that, that they theorized, why would anyone want to travel all of these distances and, and engage in this journey, which is bound to consume a lot of resources of some kind? at all. And the answer would be that if they had the power to do that, which is essentially power over the whole universe, because if they're doing this, they're probably not traveling at light speed. In terms of the size of the universe, the speed of light is incredibly slow. There is, there are must, if there are, they are here, there must be other ways of transferring presence. I don't say flying or traveling because it might not be that. It might be something else. Uh -huh. In any case, they would be looking for something new. And they might find that by observing, not that they would find something that they hadn't understood technologically, hardly that, but they might find cultural artifacts, ways of thinking, even music, poetry, and literature that, that might give them a sense of enjoyment and, and open new directions for them in terms of their own cultural journey. And so our innovations and our history and our experience of life might be what they are here to see and to, to experience. And if they revealed themselves, then that would all end because we would immediately all be in totally directed
directed toward them, basically begging for knife blades and beads yeah. uh, in their terms, like uh, Indians in the Amazon, when they are first contacted, end up begging from, or from us. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Tremendous stuff. I really hadn't considered that that would be what would be driving them, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it, because they really want for nothing if you think about the abilities that they have, theoretically. So then what would drive them, and that would be something that, that would be something that they'd be interested in. Now, I also found it interesting in the book that, and, and you repeat the phrase a couple times, uh, that you say, as I reach towards the last decades of my life, which I thought was just profound and, and just uh, really thought-provoking in and of itself, that society is still unwilling to take an honest look at the paranormal. You express this frustration, sort of a dual frustration, that, you know, that the time is running out for you here on this earthly plane at the same time that this has been going on for so long and people... The mainstream still isn't, you know, giving it a fair shake, if you will. Well, it, well, I don't think it ever will, because what's happening is that there's this, well, this tremendous movement in ma- the mainstream intellectual culture to secularize and mortalize everything. By mortalize, I mean to say that life ends with the body the end of the body, that there is nothing that we can't see around us and that uh, none of the energies and and uh, anomalies that people like me end up detecting in our lives have any validity, that all thought is an outcome of brain activity only. Um, this is the Christopher Hitchens model. Yeah. And then there's the um, the Rupert Sheldrake model, which he's just published a book uh, about the decline of science, which, among other things, makes the interesting point that animals which are trained to do uh, certain tasks, even when they lose their brains, when they lose the parts of their brains in which the memories are stored, can still do the tasks, meaning that something else is going on. Yeah. Um, but this, I've noticed since the publication of Communion to the publication of this book, a real hardening. It's a very different world now. Uh, for example, when Communion was published, it was reviewed generally just everywhere in the New York Times and, and well-reviewed. But now, for solving the communion enigma, there was one review in uh, the Associated Press and one review in the Library Journal, and that was it. No one else touched it. They didn't touch it. And there were no national radio or television shows except for Coast to Coast AM and Man Cow in the Morning, both of whom I have known and been involved with for years. But in the mainstream, not a single show touched it. What I find interesting about that whole thing is I've noticed this too, this hardening, but I see it almost in a sense too that the UFO phenomenon, this mystery is almost being taken for granted now. There's like so much sense that people sort of accept that UFOs are real and the government's covering up and, and almost like you're saying that society is still unwilling to take an honest look at it. Like, People have, have this begrudging acceptance of it almost, at least people in the mainstream, people who don't really, you know, spend their days talking about it like you and I do. Well, people are, are afflicted 
with passivity. This culture is just notorious for making people passive. Uh, it, it made them so passive in Germany in the 30s that they ended up being taken over by monsters and following those monsters into the depths of hell, literally. Uh, 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 and that passivity is it, it emerges somehow or another out of the materialistic culture that we have. I, I, I'm afraid that I can't say exactly how, except that I have noticed that it has been getting, over the past 100 or 150 years, more and more profound in the West. People are just very, very passive. And uh, they're passive to this. And, and in this particular case, uh, for example, the White House recently was given a petition that it had to respond to about UFOs, and it said there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever of ET being here at all. And, of course, that's a complete and total fabrication. Uh, it's demonstrably a fabrication. But... It, it isn't that it convinced anybody that, that they aren't hiding things. I'm sure it didn't. But it did reinforce passivity because it's saying we are not going to open this door. And, and people are left with, well, how do we open the door? And the answer is, apparently, we do not open the door. Another example, in the scientific community, if you try to, to study UFO activity, or UFO, any UFO, anything related to UFOs, your career is over. Your scientific career ends. And that is, it's not so different from what might have happened to somebody or what did happen to people like Giordano Bruno and Galileo. Yeah. Uh, uh, when, when they tried to uh, rock the boat of convention back in the 16th century. Uh, the, 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 and yet, I think it's even more seamless now because there's really the, the, the challenge. Any challenge like that is going to met, be met with quiet and personally devastating dismissal. That isn't going to have the public notoriety of Galileo's trial. Yeah, even yeah, exactly. It's even worse. You're right. Cause, it's uh, worse. Yeah, yeah it's, absolutely it's like worse. Totally Less marginalized. But, well, I also found interesting in the book, sort of, to tie this together sort of these two ideas that we're talking about now is that you put forward the theory or idea that that you know the the activity of the visitors for lack of a better term is uh they're, they're stimulating both sides of our brain through trauma stimulating the right side of the brain and then through the mystery of it all stimulating the left side of the brain to potentially you know speed up or evolve our mental functioning so that we could catch up to them and they don't have to do they don't have to reveal themselves and mess everything up. Like, we need to catch up to them. So I guess talk a little bit about this idea here. Well, if what's happening is this. This is a discovery that my wife Anne made, and uh, I might add that her part in this is huge. She's, mm -hmm. she's an immense part of the work that we do, and I, we consider it a team effort. Her discovery was this. In reading uh, scientific papers, she found that a study had been conducted showing that exposure to unanswerable questions and surrealism like the work of Kafka and so forth, of course they wouldn't touch the UFOs material, <laughs> uh, actually changes the brain 
it changes the left brain, making it more logical. And she said to herself, my goodness, look at what's happening all around us. And it's obvious when you think of it that somebody is making a massive effort to change the left brain and to literally improve its functioning. Uh, and they are doing this by presenting us with this immense theatrical, extraordinary, uh, undeniable mystery that we can neither tolerate nor resolve. In other words, it's like a gigantic dose of unanswerable questions and strange yeah. surrealism that's, that's uh, affecting the whole planet. Everybody who wonders about this is literally changed by it. I think that's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it could be by design, really, is, is sort of the idea in a way, too, to bring us into into whatever this higher state is. Now, the book also sort of puts forward this troubling aspect that, you know, the time is sort of running out here, that, that you know, the, the planet is, is barely tenable as it is, and it's heading even further over the precipice of doom, and we don't know necessarily whether these visitors are going to intervene or not. And in addition to that, I guess you could say, uh, and, and to what we're also talking about here with this brain stimulation is that I've been finding it kind of troubling in recent years, this sort of merging of man and technology, which we're seeing all the time. And you just have to look at, you know, go to a cafe or a coffee shop or a bar, and you'll see plenty of people who are, they're just plugged into their phones, and, and they're not really a part of society at, at times. They're, they're just completely turned into machines, which I find to be even more troubling. I, I guess, sort of, what are your thoughts on that, you know, bringing all these points together, you know, the idea that the time's running out, that people are, becoming more technological, maybe that's working against the idea of, of developing us as higher mental beings. Well, you know, I've been a member of the Gurdjieff Foundation since 1970, and I speak very little about it, but the, the, the Gurdjieff's primary thesis was that we are machines, that we that our attention is not our own, that it goes out into the world and and uh, we simply follow wherever it takes us. And if you observe yourself carefully, you find that this is absolutely the way you live. But it's not necessary to live that way. It's, it's possible to have an active attention and a free attention and to become a true, truly free human being in this manner. And there are lots of ways of doing it besides uh, the Gurdjieff method. It just happened to work for me. In any case... This mechanization of the human and the melding of the human and the machine are things to worry about very seriously, especially because of the fact that it will not be long. It will certainly be well within the lifetimes of those of us who are around now, most of us, that we will begin to be able, that the, the computer will begin to be able to be plugged into the brain and it, perhaps not now, not that soon, but certainly within 20 or to 50 years, it's going to be possible for people to literally plug in to knowledge and to acquire it without any study whatsoever. But what does that tell you about the man, about the, in, about the growth of the person? It tells you that you can have a person who is completely empty and totally unexamined, but because of artificial uh, involvement, 
incredibly brilliant. And it, it, it to me, is the, is the disappearance of the human being into the machine, and it's going to be completely seamless. It is, we're, we're not going to be able to tell the point at which we have ceased to be mostly human and have become mostly machine. It's troubling. It's frightening, really. It's a, you know. It's very frightening, and it will happen. <laughs> That's the frightening part, too. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's frightening on two it, levels. It will happen, and people <laughs> who, who won't do it are going to be left behind. People who insist on remaining natural human beings are going to, in a sense, be left behind by others who are who have m- much more powerful brains and much more information access to the point where the difference is going to be completely incredible. There will be people with virtually limitless intelligence but who are essentially machines and people with natural minds who are trying to somehow keep up. I mean, it's a the challenge of of consciousness over the next 50 years is going to be completely extraordinary and beyond anything we have as yet even begun to imagine. We'll talk a little bit, you mentioned it here, and I found it to be tremendously interesting uh, in the book, uh, this idea of attention as a waveform, because uh, it's a concept that I'd never even considered before or thought of. Uh, it, you know, it's sort of like gravity. You never really sort of uh, assign you know, characteristics to something like attention, but but you you sort of uh, put forward attention as a waveform as an idea in the book, and I thought that was uh, really unique. Well, it's exactly what it is, uh, and and if you if you work with attention, you find that it's it it, it is actually not something that emerges from you. It's something that you can connect with, and. It has an extraordinary sweetness and presence, and it is of us, but it is not us, and uh, not oneself. Uh, uh, But it takes a lot of effort to work with this, many, many years, and I'm not so sure that people just uh, picking the book up casually would be able to go down that particular road. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been on that road for, gosh, 40 plus years, and I'm just coming perhaps to the first, uh, to the first real crossing, as it were. <laughs> well, you make it sound, just the description here, you make it sound almost like a dance. Well, yeah, uh, it is, it is a dance, and the whole process is a dance, but it's a different sort of a dance in that a dance you, you, you go to sleep in, a, in an ordinary dance. In other words, you dance to the rhythm and let your body do the dancing. Mm-hmm. Here, in letting go into consciousness, it is an act of, of, of intentional balance, not, not automatic balance, and the difference is profound. Um, so it's really hard for me to... To describe that, okay. But but uh, it, it, it just it, you just have to to take it as it were on faith that if anyone listening wants to begin this journey of attention, I would suggest picking up uh, P. D. Uspensky's book and search the miraculous and starting there. 
Interesting. It's a long journey, but one very well worth taking. Yeah, it sounds like something definitely worth investigating further. Now, the subtitle of the book is What is to Come? And, of course, uh, we only got you for like five more minutes. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, getting into exactly what is to come is, is uh, you know, a, a fool's errand at this point. But what do you think, uh, you know, is a sort of tangible idea of what people can look for, I guess you could say? I know you're not a prognosticator or anything like that, but where do you see sort of things unfolding in the near term that, that people should be aware of or, or thinking about or even uh, looking for? Well, the close encounter, the whole UFO phenomenon is, is in the process of changing in some way uh, right now. And, for example, a lot of people around the world are hearing these strange sounds, which is a new phenomenon. And I'm very dismissive, generally, of, of things that show up on YouTube. Only I've heard them myself and have uh, had some experiences here in our apartment just in the past couple of weeks with, with, with these sounds that suggest that there is something there, something very real is happening, a new change. Is it connected to the UFO phenomenon or not? I don't know. But I have reason to believe it may be. And so I think we can expect change in the near future, and I suspect also, and I could be wrong about this, I don't know, but I suspect that as if mankind reaches a state of extraordinary peril, I mean more peril than we reached in, for example, World War II, that we reach a state of extinguishing peril perhaps because of war or environmental collapse or something, there may be a, no, a more open response to us because it would be necessary. The, whoever's there, if I'm right about their interest in, in, in gaining a, a, a sense of the new from our own experience of discovery, if they were to lose us all together, then they would have no chance of getting that. And so they might take steps that would expose them a little bit more to us uh, in order to save us or help us save ourselves. Now, that said, this is a really big place, this universe. Really big. There must be not billions of intelligent species out there, but probably trillions. So how important could we be to anybody yeah. in the end, except ourselves? Absolutely, yeah. That's definitely uh, that's the perfect place to end this conversation. That's that's what people really should be thinking about. The book is Solving the Communion Enigma. The website, of course, unknowncountry.com. It's been a real pleasure, Whitley. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. That does it for the season finale of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Whitley Streber for joining us here at the end of the program. Check out his website, www.unknowncountry.com, as well as the new book, Solving the Communion Enigma. And, of course, big, big thanks to Brad Steiger for being our featured guest here on the season finale. Tremendous stuff. Check out his website, www.bradandsherry.com, as well as one of his many, many fine books. Moving right along now, we will skip BOA audio listener feedback because it is the season finale of the program. I want to take a little time here to talk about what we've all just seen wrap up. I mentioned it at the beginning of the program. Season 6 definitely was one of the most difficult seasons of the program. 
numerous scheduling issues and a whole bunch of technical stuff that happened with regards to our host site as well as the music issue. So we were just beset by all of these problems over the course of the season. Despite all that, though, in my honest opinion, really, episode for episode, I think this was one of the very best periods for the program. It was tremendously varied and really and truly esoterically eclectic. I mean, if you look over the course of the last year, we have discussed so many different weird and off-the-beaten-path topics. Financial conspiracies, the alternative Bigfoot theories man-made monsters, the Ouija board, alchemy, Mothman, behind the scenes at the National Enquirer, spontaneous human combustions, human mutilations, the Michael Jackson death hoax, and who can forget, murderous horses. I mean, this has been quite the season, and I have really enjoyed digging into these fringe topics. I really had no idea where the season was going to go as it unfolded, but the more and more I delved, into the periphery of the esoteric, the more fascinating I found it. And I've heard from so many listeners who agree and have enjoyed Season 6. I'm already really looking forward to BOA Audio Season 7. I've actually been kind of developing the new season since the holidays because I kind of had an idea of where the final episodes of Season 6 were going to fall. So this thing has been in the thought process for quite some time, and I'm really looking forward to finally being able to kick off Season 7 and dive in and sort of start a fresh new chapter of the program. I look at the BOA Audio Seasons as a whole as kind of like an album, and each episode is a song on that album. That's how we manage to do such really unique episodes, because I take the time to really dig for some compelling stuff for all the BOA Audio listeners who have supported us for so very long. So, I don't know, I'm going to just keep rambling here if I don't get to a point. There will be a Season 7, of course. The planning for Season 7 is already well underway. I can't really give you a time for the premiere of Season 7. I know better than to do that after all these years, and especially after this past season of the program. But I have one particular date in mind, and I'm hoping and aiming to launch Season 7 on that date. And it's in the not-too-distant future, so do not worry. There's about 180 episodes in the BOA Audio Archive that should keep you busy until we roll out Season 7. And since this is BOA Audio listener feedback, I want to give feedback to all you guys out there, and just say thank you for your support of the program. I know that it has been a very unnerving season and a very frustrating season for the folks who want to hear from us week after week after week. Your tireless support and really unending patience with this program is definitely something that has resonated with me and something that I very, very much appreciate You guys out there understand what we're doing here at BOA Audio, and I really want to thank you for that. You get this program. You are amazing. And as I say at the end of the program all the time, you are the fuel that drives this machine. Without the BOA Audio audience, I might as well just be yelling out my window. You guys are amazing, and thank you for your support. Since I feel like BOA Audio Season 7 really is just right around the corner, and it's already really crystallized in my mind. I almost don't feel too nostalgic and sad here as we close the book on Season 6. 
because in a lot of ways it was kind of like a snowball rolling down the hill. I pushed it, and then as it was getting bigger and bigger and sort of rolling down the hill, and as it was underway, we were just nailed with all this stuff. And to do the two things at once, sort of maintain the program and keep the show running with new episodes, got to be quite a challenge in Season 6. And I all the time was kind of looking for this fresh start, looking forward to a time when I wouldn't have all these technical issues and really would be able to focus more on the program. I feel like it kind of got away from me a little bit as the season was going on. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this can kind of understand how that feeling arose over the course of the season. So here we are looking out on a fresh horizon, that is BOA Audio Season 7, and I'm just tremendously excited about where we are going in the future, but I still want to hear your suggestions for the new season of the program, or just send me your thoughts on Season 6. What did you like? What didn't you like? What do you want to hear more of next time around on the program? You can reach me via the following methods. Head on over to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. Or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That'll send me an email. And, of course, the third big method is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. And I should mention that I am on Twitter and Facebook, so you can reach me that way as well. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. It wouldn't be the end of the program if I did not thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, especially this time around, for their amazing work behind the scenes this season. Once again, let's roll through the credits here of the BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolan, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. BOA has not given up on the written word, my friends. We have got some really cool stuff in development for the BOA team that hopefully you'll be seeing very, very soon. Now would normally be when I would ask you to make a donation, but we already did that at the beginning of the program, so there's really no need for me to go over it once again. Of course, you can find out all the donation information at BOA on the left-hand side of the screen. I know I'm talking to the hardcore listeners now, the folks who have tuned in to the very end of the final minutes of Season 6. I hope you have enjoyed all 33 free episodes. Please, please, please make a donation and help us get into the black as we get ready to kick off Season 7. Obviously, no tease for next time on the program. I guess you could say you know what's next time on the program. That's Jim Mars to kick off Season 7. And as noted just now, since this is really the hardcore listeners that are left here at the end of the program, I'll give you one tease about Season 7. And that is, if I had one word, really, that's kind of revolving around my head as I'm putting it all together, it is international. So... Stick that in your pipe and smoke it as you get ready for Season 7. International is the flavor of the moment. And uh, if I was going to tease you with the premiere date, 
I'd say you'd be a fool to miss it. And on that note, we close the book on BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks once again to Brad Steiger and Whitley Strieber for joining us here on the season finale. Big thanks to all the folks who contributed over the course of the season for BOA Audio listener feedback. Thanks to all of the amazing guests who joined us here on BOA Audio this season. And last but certainly not least, once again, thank you to all the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are tremendous. You humble me week after week, day after day with your support and encouragement and real ownership of this program. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making this a real season to remember. I look forward to our collective journey when season seven begins and unfolds. It's going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.